busy like two weeks yeah it has in fact i i say i'm ready for it to slow down but it's not going to uh, we just got back from what well, we're doing one thing that's different is that we're doing a live we have decided we have from now on we are doing lives as much as katie doesn't want to everything will be live now yay she's so excited we gotta decorate this room this room is sad yeah, yes, some anti-echo. Echo. So I'm going to work on that. I actually have a plan for a really cool quilted tablecloth Yeah, that I think so will help. Here. Yeah. My so you can hear everything moving. Yeah. But we're also getting a new we're table. We're also getting a different table, so that'll help. And we'll put some posters and stuff on the walls. Yeah, I got to decorate. This is a hot mess. Because right now we're sitting in a, it's in a room of just white walls. And a ceiling fan. Hey, there's Darren. We're waiting. We'll have a bunch of people, hopefully. We got to get a on. ceiling fan. Doesn't this have a green screen function? It does have a green screen function. What? We don't have to figure that out right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember how to do it exactly. We'll do it later. But it's got one. Yeah. So I'll figure it out later. So tell us about y'all's weekend. I was here unpacking. We went to the uh, farthest reaches of Texas. (laughs) It was actually cool. Like there was one night where it was was. Hey, look, there's Robbie. Robbie's a the the. High on Sunday in Amarillo was 74. Yeah. I woke yeah. up cold on Saturday. I'm so excited. Those are the temperatures that I'm supposed to have at camp next week. That's what you're going to North Alabama for. Uh, uh, on a mountain. Camp. There's That's Ilana great. joined also. There's Victor. How's it going, Victor? I'm looking forward to having all the people on here live. It's going to be great. Uh, so, yeah, we went up to the Herp Show in Amarillo. I've never been to Amarillo. I saw a mule deer for the first time. Mm-hmm. We went herping. Uh, kind of. We went road cruising. I did find a frog or toad I've never seen in my entire life. Well, outside of pictures, I saw a spadefoot toad. Mm-hmm. These giant, like, yellow, lime green dots all over it. It was amazing looking. <clears throat> yeah, we we started driving around after it rained. Yeah, and then we drove around before it rained. It was just a little too cool, I think, for any of the snakes to be out moving. Yeah, there was a local guy that said if we had done it the day, like, the week before, we'd yeah. found tons of stuff. Like Russell, That's cool. Russell, um, Southard, and Bart, and some others, they went out, but they... They were like flipping over a bunch of junk and found a an atrox on a uh, what was that? I said it was a Sonoran ground snake. Yeah, the little stripy, the yeah. ring looking thing. That was a cool looking little snake. So, but it was a fun trip. I, it was a good trip. We uh, it was the first time that show. It's the first time Sean is in a show, a herp show there. Uh, they've they've had a reptile show there before. Uh, two years ago was the last time they had it. So I think I think it's going to end up being a good show. It was, it was a decent show for us. Uh, but it was the first one there, so it's got some room to grow. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I did, I did better than break even. So yeah, you did I well. was all by myself. Poor, poor Katie. But not even I don't my know kid if was heard, here. If I told you guys, but I heard a rumor today. Oh lord! That Lone Star Reptile Racks is going out of business. What? What? And that my wife is mad. <gasps> no, there's drama, and I didn't even know about it. I didn't know about it either. I Man, <laughs> so where did you hear all this at? I just heard it. And uh, somebody called to verify. They called not more. Than, it was more than one person. Um, but I, I know where it came from, and I've already nipped it in the bud. That's crazy. And told them. Um, hey, that's how you know you've made it when rumors oh, yeah. fly. Well, I mean, Todd posted a thing today on Facebook about how when he went into this full time, he had so many naysayers and stuff. And I was like, hey, I heard I'm going out of business. What you hear? He's <laughs> like, yeah, that happened to me like a year ago. People started saying I was going out of business. That's I, so I didn't crazy. ask if I could share this, but I'm going to share this. My favorite was the customer that complained and gave you the BS reason for wanting his refund. 
Oh yeah. Oh, you even heard the rest of that. So the, from what I had heard. Okay, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Wait. What I had heard is he wanted a refund because he had heard a bunch of negative things about Lone Star Reptile Racks. Which, by the way, I've searched. There's nothing out there, and he has no negative reviews. So I asked him, "Can you put me in contact with the people who are having a problem?" That you. Because um, they don't then, exist. Then he, but then he said, "Well, I'll go ahead and take the rack." Um, and I said, "No, I'm, no we're you're good, man. I already hit the refund button. Go buy it somewhere else. I, I don't have time for look. Look, All right, anybody listening? If Pause. you order something that is a special order, and it's going to take time to get it to you, if at some point along the way you realize you just don't have the money for it, you need that money back, whatever." Just tell a person, hey, man, I know I ordered this, but I need that money back. And a lot of times they'll go, that's cool, and they'll refund you the money. Don't make up reasons why you want the, you don't want to get whatever it is. Heads up, I may or may not sneeze in the next 30 seconds. I apologize in advance. Okay. Also, can I can't talk to our friends in the chat well, yeah, you can't because comment I'm from here. backstage. You don't need to talk to them. I am. Victor has a really cool picture he was going to show me. Well, then, tough. Victor can wait. Victor's like a statue. I've seen him on voice on uh, Zoom calls. Uh huh. For half the time, I just think he's asleep. Oh my gosh! <laughs> or that his screen froze. So respect your wife, James. Respect. Vic- Victor your will get wife. on Chris's Zoom calls, and he's definitely let's say not at home. So I don't want to give him in trouble. He's not at home, <laughs> and uh, just just frozen. It's great. Oh my goodness. So, yes. So, speaking of, let's do sponsors. Lone Star Reptile Racks not going out of business. Katie, do you want to? In fact, if you are looking for a high-quality PVC rack, look no further than Lone Star Reptile Racks. They offer a variety of sizes for all types of snakes, geckos, rats, and more. You can even order something custom. Shipping is available, or you can plan to pick up at a Herps Reptile Show near you. Visit lsreptileracks.com to reach out to Lone Star Reptile Racks and place your order today. Dot com. I didn't get a chance to say. Thank <laughs> Uh, also, we mentioned them, Herps Reptile Shows. Our next reptile show for Herps Reptile Shows is Slidell, which I'm sure will be uh, crazy, as it always is. If, if anybody's ever been to Conroe and not been to the Herps Slidell Show, they're about the same. I mean, it's the same number of people coming through that door. It's crazy. And then our others is Wiregrass Exotics, who are opening their doors officially this weekend. Yep. T-minus two days until their grand opening, which will be July 3rd at 11 a.m. If you are in the area of Ozark, Ozark Alabama. Alabama. Be sure to go by and check them out. They'll have feeders, reptiles, and supplies. They're also going to be holding a special raffle on Saturday for lots of goodies with gift cards, supplies, and maybe even a custom-built tank. Be sure to tell your friends and family and everybody in the area that you may know who's looking for something cool to do. Dallas and Amanda are really awesome people, and they've got some really cool things going on in their shops, so be sure to check it out. They kind of have like a feeder subscription. If I read the board right, it's a thousand dollars, but you can get them. Or not a thousand, it's a thousand crickets, but you can get them as needed. So, like, you pay for your thousand crickets, and then you go in. And then you over go in. I need a hundred this week. Mm-hmm. I need a hundred yep. next, until so you reach a thousand. Your subscription. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty smart. Yeah, yep. that's pretty good. That way, you're not having to go buy three hundred and then one hundred and fifty of them die before you can ever feed. Well, them. and if you're like, if you, if you're like a lot of other people, and you might be living paycheck to paycheck, it's a lot easier the day after payday to say, yes. "Oh, here's seventy five dollars that I'm dropping on animal supplies." And all of a sudden, oh man, it's end of the month and I need this much, you know, and you don't have it. But if you know you have your subscription there, you're good. So they've got their big grand opening on the third. Then we have our friends over at Grant Family Exotics in Oklahoma who also have their big 
grand opening of their second store. Second store? New no, store? It's a new store. It's a new store. They moved to a different like location. Caddy Corner from their old store. Or if you live up north, it's Kitty Corner. Well, that's wrong. It's Caddy Corner. <laughs> so they moved Caddy Corner from their – you can literally see the old store from their window. Uh, but they also opened – This Saturday. This Saturday. Yeah. So, I mean, Oklahoma, Alabama – Anywhere in between, pick a side, drive, make See, a trip. Oklahoma, Alabama, or any Herps show in between. Yeah, it's going to be a, it's a great weekend for reptiles. So, and then, like I said, in three, four weeks, when, when is Slidell? It's the 20. Yeah. Slidell's the 24th and 25th of July. What she said. 24th. I'll be at that show. That's after camp. Yes, that is our next big show. Looking forward to that. Although, you have another show, one that we've never done before uh, the Shirts uh, Lone, Star, Lone Star Show. Yes. Darren Watson said if he was planning on attending a Herb's Reptile show, what would be the best show and what time of year? Um, I would definitely check out either Slidell, Louisiana, or Conroe, Conroe. Texas, yeah. just because I think those are the two and I would do the definitely show, largest shows. And I would do the show somewhere around – I know there's a Conroe in September. Yes. That's going to be a good one because people are going to have a lot of babies. stuff to sell babies. And I don't know when the next Slidell is. Slidell's done three times a year, just like Conroe. Slide. Those are the only two shows. Conroe and Slidell are done three times. I want to say it's November. So that would be the good one to go to for Slidell. Whichever the next one is. Not this one. I mean, some people will have some babies, but it won't be as good. There is Slidell's December 11th and December. 12th. December. So, oh, yeah. That's, come a, down for, yeah. Come so down that's a good Christmas, Christmas stuff. But Slidell's a big one. That's, I love that one. Plus, if you're making a trip of it, Slidell, you're... 30 minutes from New Orleans. I love everything about the Slidell show except the drive. Yes. Yes. Because that drive sucks. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'm not excited. It has not sucked for us in the past years because we were only three hours away. Because we've only been three hours. But yeah. now we're in Texas and it's Oof. going to be. Let's see. The first Slidell, the six hour drive took me 10. Yeah. Last time it took me eight. Of course, Lafayette took me, what does it take us? Yeah. Five? It's that I can stretch between Lake Charles. There's always an accident on I Killed us yesterday, too. So. Yeah. All right. Brutal. I think that's, oh, before we go any farther, I do want to announce that I had something happen. So we were out herping, like I said, on Saturday night, or Friday night, Friday night, and I got a FaceTime call from my mother-in-law and as soon as it hit my phone i knew exactly what it was <laughs> i was the farthest i could possibly be from my home in louisiana and, and still my, be in texas and still be in texas and my rainbow boa had babies and she did call you first i want you to know did she you? didn't call me first she called you first because i was like please tell me that you've called james she's like oh i called him first i said good job she uh and then she I had my buddy pumped. chuck i had my buddy chuck go over there at midnight i've got to thank chuck he's amazing he went over at midnight and collected all the babies there were 10 Healthy babies, they are now here in Texas with me, along with Mama, who I got to get set up tonight. Um, there's 10 healthy babies, I think two uh, stillborns, one very underdeveloped, and three infertile ovums. So, not bad. Say Pretty. hi, Jennifer. She said hi. Oh, hi, hi Jennifer. Pretty awesome. Uh, I, I, I do want to finish. I, I don't want oh. people to think I'm bitching about my customers. No, you don't. Uh, <laughs> oh. Look, 99.9% .9 of my customers are amazing. It's that one percent, point one percent. No joke. There was the girl at uh, Amarillo that really impressed me this weekend. She was looking at either the six tub, yep. uh, twenty eight quart, which was smaller, or the three tub seventy, mm -hmm. which would be larger, which would hold adult ball pythons their entire life. And the girl had two adult ball pythons, or grow out ball, three adult ball pythons. She was growing out. She could have gone the cheaper route and put them in the smaller one and got more cages. But instead, she made the right decision and she went with the larger one. And we even advised her to buy the larger one, which which costs less. You know, I'm not in it just to sell everything. Yeah. I want you to have the right thing. But 
you know, I mean, occasionally you get, you know, like right now we've been dealing with the PVC shortage and I am up against the wall right now. There is yeah. none. Uh, tomorrow's the first. We're supposed to get an update. Hopefully going to have some early next week, but I've got some people that are, you know, eight weeks right now since they ordered and I just don't have the PVC to build and I have to do shows. Yeah. That's where, that's where I make 95% of my money at. I forgot to hit record on my little thing here. Oh, no, it's recording on there though. We're, we got it recording. I just didn't record them. I'll hit it here. Maybe people will hear it spliced together oh. later. Fancy box. I know. So yeah, it's uh, it's a little stressful right now, but. But it's getting made and you get a new machine mm-hmm. soon. Got a new machine coming in a couple days and then I got, you know, we made our first acrylic box oh, today. Oh yeah, you can see it on the screen there. Yeah. We made our first acrylic box today with a slide out lid and. That'd be great for isopods and inverts, stuff. inverts, all kinds. I of plan stuff. on doing some stuff for some small snakes, but that's yeah. that's down the road. So, all right, I want to go ahead and bring in our guest. Uh, oh, there! Uh, I think it was Victor said, "How the move go?" The move went fine. The move is still happening. Still, Let's be real. It's, it's still happening. We made a trip <laughs> yesterday to get more stuff. It's there's still stuff in Louisiana. I've gotten rid of so much stuff, and there's still like there's not as much to move. Like we could do one trailer load and get everything else that's left at the house. At the house. But then there's still a storage unit. Yeah, we have too much stuff. But it's cool. It'll get done when it's done. It is. So let me make sure I bring in. There we go. Bring in our guest. Dr. Hannah Seidel, is that how you pronounce it? Oh, I forgot. I got the you got to unmute them. There we go. They're unmuted. <laughs> Dr. Hannah Seidel and yep. Dr. Kyron Graves. Oh, he got the first name right. I, I, I just we knew you were going to mess that one up. I, I, cheated. <laughs> I cheated and had her tell me, the, tell me your name. We but, practiced. Okay, I think, okay I'm, uh, I think I'm a nerd for a second. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the guy that drives the boat from the underworld in, uh, in Greek mythology. No, that's uh, Charon. Oh, Charon. Chiron is the centaur. I was going to say, that's he's the right. centaur that, I knew it was, I, that helps I was, out Percy Jackson, because we read that in, at school last year. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Oh. That's what they read in fourth grade, so uh, yeah. Okay, well, I was I had Greek <laughs> mythology right. I was just wrong person. Uh, so I'll let y'all go ahead and introduce yourselves, kind of give us a little background, and then we'll get into... The really interesting work that y'all are planning on doing, and y'all are doing, uh, and and kind of how everybody can help here. So uh, whoever wants to go first, I'll let y'all decide. I can start. So uh, I'll first just say that I'm so happy to be here to talk about our project. So we founded what we're calling the Ball Python Genetics Project, and the goal of our project is to identify the genes and mutations that cause different ball python color morphs. So we're interested in what those genes are, what they're doing molecularly, how, how can we create genetic tests for them. And we have both scientific goals and educational goals because this project is part of an undergraduate lab course at Eastern Michigan University, which is where both Kyron and I are professors. We're both in the biology department. And so I teach a genetics laboratory where students learn techniques in genetics. They learn how to read scientific literature. And I wanted to create a project where the students could be collecting real data and making real discoveries in their classroom. And so the basic idea of what we do is we collect shed skins from ball pythons sent in by pet owners and breeders throughout the country. And then we try to identify the genes in different morphs. And so far we have identified the genes in three different morphs, the albino toffee candy morph, so those are allelic, and the lavender albino morph and the ultramel morph. 
And there is another group in Canada that has studied the piebald morph. So that's the totality of morphs for which collectively as scientists, we think we know the genetic basis. So the, the albino ones, that's all dealing with, uh, I don't remember how to pronounce it. Is it tyrosine? Tyrosinase, yeah. So the, the albino morph does not make the pigment called melanin, which is the brown to black pigment that we as humans have. We have it in our skin. We have it in our eyes. We have it in our hair. Different people have different amounts and different subtle variations on the pigment, which gives us our different hair color, skin color, eye color, and so on. And ball pythons also make this pigment, and the enzyme that makes it is called tyrosinase. Yeah, because for anybody listening, that's when you see uh, in boas for sure, and it's kind of the same thing with the ultramale and albino. You'll see T-positive albinos and T-negative albinos, um, and it's, so it's talking about right. the tyrosinase. Right. Yeah, so typically the T-positive would be referring to animals that do make tyrosinase, but they have another defect that still prevents them from making melanin. Whereas the T-negative animals, they don't make tyrosinase, and that's the reason why they can't make the melanin pigment. And so the ones that are T-negative, what we would normally refer to as an albino, it's the way that most of us think of as an albino. It's the yellow and white snakes, or if you're talking about boas, it's the red and white snakes. Uh, T-positives being things like caramel albinos or ultramel or things like that, that still give you that kind of that tan color, but it's still got the albino look to it. Yes, exactly. Like lavender albino in ball pythons would be an example where you get that lavender color of the skin, which is probably due to the animals making a teeny, teeny, tiny amount of melanin, but but much less than normal. Gotcha. Huh. So that's similar to, for example, people with green eyes in humans. The, the eye color is produced by the amount of melanin you have in your eyes. And if you don't have any melanin in your eyes, then you have blue eyes or gray eyes. And it, the people with that eye color, they don't have a specific blue pigment, but instead it's the way that light interacts with the physical structures in the eye. And if you have a little bit of pigment in your eye, you end up with a green eye. And if you've got more pigment, you end up with hazel or brown eyes. And as far as, uh, if I remember correctly, I'm also a high school biology teacher, and you're always taught uh, early on that genetics, like if you mix a blue-eyed person with a brown-eyed person, but from my understanding, none of that really is true, and that you could pretty much have blue eyes or blue brown eyes pop up, not randomly, but not in a simple genetic way? That's a really good question. So eye color is, uh, the the answer is more complicated than you think. It's both simple and complicated. So the simple part is that most of the distinction between light colored eyes, and by light colored, I mean um, blue, gray, really light green that sometimes looks blue, all of that Um, is the difference between those eye colors and everything else, which would be hazel, light brown, dark brown, combinations of stuff, that is mostly controlled by one gene. But once you get into either of those groups, so what determines like gray versus bright blue or what determines hazel versus brown, then the genetics is really complicated. All right. So we we have one listener and a friend of ours, Travis Wyman, who is a professor at Travis, I don't want to mess it up. You're somewhere in Virginia, and I should probably know this, but I don't. But sure. we know it's Virginia. We do know it's Virginia. We Kate, do know it's Virginia. As much as Kate told me it was West Virginia. Because I said West before. Virginia and was Virginia. wrong. But uh, so he said blue-eyed people still have melanin. A true yeah. albinistic human has yep. red eyes. So, so he's right. So I yeah. simplified a little bit. So yeah. it has to do with where in the eye. So in your eye, a brown-eyed person has melanin in the retina and the iris. A blue-eyed person has melanin in the retina but not the iris. Whereas an albino person would lack melanin in both of those places. 
Yeah, so Travis, cool your ass off. It's fine. Chill. That he brought that up. It's, it's, um, it's actually a really good point because one of the issues that people with albinism have is they have vision defects. And that's due to the defects in the retina, whereas people with blue eyes don't have vision defects that because, because their retina is just fine. Gotcha. And I, and I got to correct. I'm, I'm sorry, Travis. Dr. Wyman, my bad. I called you a professor. It's Dr. Wyman. I, I get it. You went to school longer than the rest of us. I, special ass. And he Anyways. still bakes better than you do. <sighs> Anyways. <laughs> so, he bakes, so that's automatically better than just so he does bake. <laughs> so, Kyron, I understand you do have so, uh, Hannah doesn't have snakes. She's, she's genetics, but Kyron, you also do own snakes, correct? I do own, um, I've got a, um, a small collection, um, but yes, I do own ball pythons. And I actually have an albino uh, corn snake as well. What kind of? You mentioned that you teach high school biology. I do. Uh, one of the things I do at Eastern is I teach teachers how to teach science. That's so, awesome. I, uh, um, so we're coming at this project from both angles, um, both the, the, um, the traditional uh, science angle, but then there's that educational angle that Hannah talked about where we're getting students involved. And I think that's, um, well, that's one of the cool things about our project is that we're getting students involved in this process of learning about how science is done and at the same time you know, learning a little bit about uh, pythons, uh, ball pythons in particular, which, as you all know, um, you, you can kind of get a mixed bag with some people that are just totally, oh, no, python, oh, those are the ones that eat babies, and others that are just kind of like, sign me up, I want to hold one. Yes. Um, we get that. I, so I, um, I've had some classes, I've been doing it for four years now, four or five years, where I'll bring some of mine in. And particularly uh, um, one of the albinos and one of the wild type to kind of talk about those differences in pigmentation and stuff. And invariably you get some students, they're like, could you have given us a heads up so we could have missed today? And then others who are like, this is the greatest class ever. It only goes down here from here, Graves. And so it's, um, it's, it's pretty fun. It amazes me whenever James and I, because I'm an elementary school teacher and he's a high school teacher. And so in Louisiana, before we moved, we would actually take some of our reptiles to the summer school programs. And so the kids could see them up close and do educational programs with them because neither one of us taught summer school. But it never failed when it got to the point where the snake would come out. There would always be teachers that were like deuces and they would like go (laughs) out the door and then they'd like wait for us to finish. And then they'd come back in the room with their kids and... I'm like y'all are missing the well, best part. Come I bring on. in my, uh, I bring in some of my corn snakes. When I do genetics. Should I bring in an anery, an albino, and a snow? Um, and I'll try to bring in a normal-ish one, and I kind of we can do some Punnett squares, some simple Punnett squares, and you know biology with corn snakes just to give them a visual. Like this is albino, this is an anery, and if I mix them together, it comes out looking normal. It looks like this. And I can literally show them what it would look like, and then you know if you breed it again, then it comes out this color. So it's I enjoy bringing snakes in. I also bring them in bring in reptiles when I do classification. We'll do, you know, a tortoise, a lizard, and a snake and do kind of a Venn diagram and similarities and differences. But for a lot of my kids, I taught at an inner city school before I moved here. Um, and, and they've never seen any of those animals. They knew dog, cat, and squirrel and past that, they have no idea that it exists. So being able to bring those animals in was always a ton of fun. 
And it's always a lot of fun when it scares the adults at the school way more than it scares the kids. Oh, yeah. I, my administration would never come into my room when they knew I had reptiles. We were we were known as the he was the snake guy and I was the snake guy's wife throughout the district. <laughs> like they other teachers would see me and they're like, Oh, you're the snake guy's wife and I'm like, I have my own job and career and do a lot with curriculum, but yes, that would be me. Yeah. Forget my attributes that I have coming, but it's all about the snake. So I just want Victor asked real quick, he said he wonders if animals with albinism also have visual defects and I'm pretty sure they do, but I'll let y'all kind of expand on that. Yeah, pro- probably, yes, especially the animals that are tyrosinase negative and have essentially no tyrosinase. Probably that's the case, although snakes rely much less on vision than mammals do. So um, a snake who is blind is probably going to have less of a hard time in life than a, a human who is blind because um, a snake uses other senses to, for example, find its food. Gotcha. Yeah, and I knew that there were issues. I have found that my... Like my snow corn quickly grew, uh, like what's well, look like cataracts in her eyes, whereas my other corn snakes didn't really. Oh yeah, that's in, that's so that's really interesting that you say that. There's certain genes that um, that cause that. So that that particular detail is something that, as a geneticist, I would I would like make a note about if, when thinking about what could be the genetic cause for that. So, uh, oh, Darren asks, as a teacher, do you need permission to bring in reptiles? Yeah, kind of. It depends on the district. I, well, I, on the college level, I have no idea. On the elementary and I imagine college level, you can do whatever you and uh, yeah, I think we can do whatever we yeah. want. I don't know. What do you What do you think, Karen? If we were supposed to get permission, <laughs> I always give my administration a heads up, and I've never really had anybody say no. Yeah. So yeah, but K twelve has always been because I actually used to teach um, high school and middle school as well, and I um, I'm originally from New Orleans, so I used to oh. teach in uh, NOPS. Yeah, we, uh, and, um, we were in central Louisiana. We were in Alexandria. What's that? We were in central Louisiana in Alexandria. Okay. Up until a month ago. Yep. And now we're in Texas. Two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I say two weeks yet. Now we say, I don't know that we've been here a full month yet. <laughs> so, um, so not enough time to really get your feet wet and no. figure no. out if you like the change. No. It's, it's a lot of change all at once. Still unpacking. Um, That'll be fun. Yeah. So... Are y'all? I didn't hear y'all, you're doing this for undergrad, which I think is amazing. Because if I, was, I wish that was my undergrad, I could have done that. I hated my genetics. I didn't hate my genetics. I hated one part of my genetics class, and that was the damn fruit flies. Oh yeah, I, I, I did fruit flies in my genetics class as well. I despised them. I could not keep them alive. I kept getting mold growing in every culture. I ended up just cheating off of my buddy who had the same mutation as me and tweaked some numbers. Sure. But it was a nightmare. It's the reason I don't own as much as I like. I'd love to have dart frogs, but in order to have dart frogs, you have to raise fruit flies, and I can't yeah. do it. I have like PTSD from fruit flies in genetics <laughs> class. No joke. Yeah. So we so in the criteria for coming up with this project, the first two criteria were interesting to the students and interesting to the instructor, and also on that list was something that was like methodologically easy for the students. And snakes are pretty easy in the sense that because we're just getting the DNA out of the shed skin, I don't have to, say, be growing fruit flies in a room to get them ready for the students. The snakes, the sheds can just sit in my freezer. They can sit in my office. It's, it's really flexible, and it's, it's a sense um, – it, it's methodologically much easier. So what is – if you can give us kind of a, a dumbed-down version of – how is this working? You're, you're taking a shed from somebody with yeah. – I'm assuming they're giving you a shed from a known 
visual of that morph? Yeah, so, yes, exactly. So I've got a database. I have almost 400 sheds now, but that shouldn't make you think that I have enough. I still want more. So if anybody's listening and they have ball pythons, please, I want sheds from all of your animals. So people will send in a shed. They will tell me what they know about it. So they'll say something like, normal uh, might be het for pied or pastel, um, possibly leopard, something like that. Um, or sometimes they'll say, somebody gave me the steak. I don't really know what it is. And here's a photograph of it. And then we have this um, collection of sheds. And then we, when we decide we're going to analyze a certain morph, we get sheds out of our freezer belonging to that morph. And then we compare that DNA to normal animals or to animals of different morphs. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> um, I guess Sean Gray messaged me. I was trying to message him. Y'all, y'all continue the conversation. I'm a very loud sneezer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Is that the only thing you're loud about? Okay, shut it. <laughs> Nobody asked. <laughs> And I, I would say actually the hardest part about the whole project is actually just getting people to send us um, sheds from their animals. Oh, that's that, that, that's we, surprisingly more difficult than you think. We hmm. can fix that. I promise you. Uh, I wonder why. Well, it's funny because well, the, hard- the hardest thing is getting them to send her sheds. Yeah. Huh? Which I laugh because Dr. Um, why can I think? I keep wanting to say Wyman, but not, not Wyman. Warren uh, Booth does, uh, did a lot of work with uh, parthenogenesis and at this point he's re- received so many sheds he's like stop <laughs> he can't take any he knows it happens he's done but we can definitely get you more sheds and we will share that information for sure um, I guess one question I have is when you're looking at that how do you handle because I, I don't know Hannah if you're familiar but there's no such thing as a normal ball python anymore it doesn't exist every single ball python has 15 million right. hets in it yeah, yeah we, so that's and we don't yeah, know. Yeah, so how do we deal with, like, the variation that you see? Yeah. So we that's why we've started with morphs that were really obvious in the sense of albino versus not albino is a pretty big difference. And so we started with morphs where there isn't a lot of, of controversy about whether the animal is, is or isn't this morph. I will say that um, even within the albino toffee candy, we took an approach where we thought, you know, people might not be completely right about what morph they are. And we found that, that that was true in a sense of sometimes people would say that their animal was toffino, which is one allele albino, one allele toffee. And when we actually did the genetics, we found that it wasn't. It was actually just albino or sometimes vice versa. So we do take into consideration that a person's information about their morph might not be 100% correct. And moving forward, we still plan to... Um, work with morphs where the actual trait is much more obvious to identify than some of the more subtle ones. So Darren had a a question. I don't know if this ties into, I'm going to be honest. I'm only comprehending and understanding (laughs) maybe a third of this conversation. And that's just because, yeah, I teach. Yeah. No. Anyways. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Katie, has almost no science oh background and yeah. she doesn't keep snakes. So she's here for moral support. I am. I'm the, well, I, I'm I the layman's term like, individual. R- Robert has some snakes, but he doesn't have the science background. So, I am so understanding I, a little bit every now and then. Let so. me know when you don't understand something because that's really, I think my failure to explain it in a way that someone without a PhD in genetics can understand. I don't think you should feel like that's your failure not to understand it. It's my failure not to explain it correctly. So Darren asked, how are both doctors 
identify, like, how are they identifying? So how, how are y'all at ident- identifying morphs? Um, I know Kyron has some background because he has some of them. Uh, how good are y'all at, at just visually being able, I, can you visually do it? And then when you look at the DNA, you're able to go, oh yeah, that's definitely what's in there. I can see that's there. So most of what we've been working with, um, like Hannah said, uh, it, it's not debatable. I mean, like the difference between an albino and um, whether it be wild type or inchy or uh, yellow belly or whatever, if it's albino, you know it's albino. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's indisputable. And so a lot of what we work with, um, one of the reasons why we work with it, I would actually add that there are two reasons why we chose what we chose. One is because this is early project. It's undergrads. You know, we want to make sure um, we can kind of get this process right. Um, and so we want to make sure there is without a doubt you can look at it and tell there's a there, there's definitely this is a albino morph versus this is a wild type. The other piece is that um, with albinism, we know a lot about albinism because of all the work that scientists have done in other animals and in humans. So I think one of the cool things about this project is being able to say, hey, you know that albino that you have? That albino actually has a similar mutation that humans have, um, human albinos have. And that's kind of like, um, James, you were talking about teaching um, specifically genetics, but then you could bring the evolution piece in there and how we're related in the sense that, wait, snakes are using the same gene that humans use to make melanin. So, um, but most of what we use, um, most of what we've been doing so far has been, it's undisputable. And as we get the, as we get the procedures down, um, and we're really comfortable with those with that methodology. Then we'll start going into things where it's like people have a, a difficulty spotting it, like yellow belly, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that's the goal. So our buddy Sean, I know. So Sean Gray, he used to breed leopard geckos, and he tried before with. And I talked to him this weekend, uh, reaching out to some companies. I think it was in Japan. He was trying to do some genetics work back then to try and figure out certain things. And he had a question. His question was, "How are you at handling the issue with incompatible alleles regarding different albino strains? Uh, and is this just for homozygous traits?" Yeah. So good question. So in ball pythons, there are a bunch of morphs that to a geneticist would be some version of albino. So you, earlier you talked about tyrosinase negative and tyrosinase positive. There are a bunch of genes that make a bunch of different proteins that are required for making the pigment. If you mess up any one of those genes, you're going to get an animal that looks albino. Depending on the gene you mess up, you might get an animal that is more bright white than a different animal. And so those would be different genes. So I think when he's saying, um, how are you handling the issues with incompatible alleles regarding different albino strains? I think he's referring to what we would call different morphs, like the albino morph versus the lavender albino morph versus the ultramal morph. So we treated those different morphs differently. So we said, let's look just in lavender albinos and let's look just in ultramals and let's look just in albinos to... um, so I guess we the, the way we handled them is we, we treated them as different groups. And so he said, can you differentiate the genetic markers between the albino strains? So could you differentiate lavender albino from yes. a regular, what we call a regular albino? Yes. Yeah. So let's say somebody received a snake and they, and they didn't know what it was, but they knew it looked like it was either albino 
or lavender albino or toffee or some version of that, if they didn't know actually the genetics of it, they could send us a shed and then we could do a test and we could tell them exactly which one it was. Oh, wow. So, and here's a, let me just jump in real quick. Cause this goes back to the, the um, piece that Hannah was talking about with um, trying to get people to send us sheds. So it benefits um, both the, the breeders and us as well. So as educators, um, we're trying to find that 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 real connection where we don't just have to, you know, like something relevant, right? By the, the, the students working to find an answer to whether or not my um, hatchling is head toffee or head albino because, you know, I had a, I bred it to a toffino. And so it's got to have one of those alleles, but I don't know which one it is. It benefits the breeder because now they could, instead of saying either het albino or het toffee, be able to have that definitive, it's het albino or it's het toffee, and not have to put the either or in there. And it benefits us because we get those samples and we've got a goal for our students to shoot for. Hey, this breeder, um, and if we could report who the breeders are and they're, they're, you know what they're wanting to know, they want an answer for um, what this genotype is. And so we can kind of help them out with this process. Yeah. So one of the projects we have going for the fall is we are trying to recruit samples from breeders or owners where the owner or the breeder would benefit from knowing more about the genetics of their animal. So if someone has an animal that they think might be possibly heterozygous for any of the morphs I just mentioned, lavender albino, ultramel, albino toffee candy if they send us a shed we can tell them whether their animal is or is not het for that month gotcha and so i was looking our buddy sean to clarify because i remember he told us about this his uh worry was how do you know how can you differentiate the markers from a het uh and a non-heteris one so like it's so hard nowadays to get a clean sample of an animal that doesn't have any hets you know it, it it's very hard to find a lot of like corn snakes. There's, I mean, you pretty much guarantee like their head albino or head anery. Almost any corn snake. How could you promise in a ball python? How do you know when you're do, when you're breaking down the markers that you got a clean sample of one that has no heads in it, so you can compare the rest of them to that? I th- um, so I think what you're asking is, let's say that I received an an- a-, a shed from someone who told me that their animal was a normal morph, that it didn't wasn't het for anything. Yes. So you're saying that in theory, it's possible that that animal could be het for albino, but that person wouldn't have known it because you can't see the albino trait when it's het. Is that what you're asking? Yes, because because there's, there's just yep. it's near impossible nowadays to find a non-heterous heterozygous animal sure, out there. Sure. So, um, so that's a really good question, and we have a genetic test that allows us to tell at specifically a particular site in the genome whether the animal has or does not have a particular mutation. And once we've identified that mutation, then we can distinguish animals that are not het to animals that are het to animals that are homozygous. And when we did our initial tests, we, um, we collected 45 animals that were, for example, for the albino trait, were not albino. So the people told us that their animals were not albino. In that sample of 45 animals, we ended up finding one that was actually het for albino, but the owner didn't know about it. And we were able to identify that with our test. Gotcha. Like, so, this, so I don't, I don't know if you realize this, if you guys are able to do this uh, across basically all the morphs eventually, 
uh, as far as the hobby goes, it'll be a huge thing because there's so many yeah. snakes sold as yeah. possible hats, probable hats, and, yeah. that, and that gets yeah. very confusing. And there's so and, many snakes. And that's why I'm surprised more people haven't sent in their sheds to me. And I'm, oh, now we got another geneticist on here. So, <laughs> crap, now I got uh, doctors yeah. everywhere. Let's see. Let me read, <laughs> let me read Warren's. How many yeah. mutations have you have been identified to the genomic region? I assume it's simply through RADSEC Rad- or WGS to identify yep. common markers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he is referring to two different techniques. The first one is RADSEC. The second one, the WGS stands for whole genome sequencing, I believe. And um, the answer is that in ball pythons, the morphs whose mutations have been identified are albino, toffee, and candy, lavender albino, Ultramel and piebald. That's for um, for ball pythons. There is a study in leopard geckos that has found the mutation for I think it's called the frosty morph. It's it's and it's a morph that has um, extra white in its body. And um, the our study did not use either of the te- techniques that he mentioned, but the study on piebald did use those techniques, and so did the leopard gecko study. Gotcha. Um, and the plan is moving forward that we're going to do additional morphs. We're, we're going to move on to more of them. Yeah, you're just trying to get a proof of concept now and yes. move from there. Yes, and we, that's why we started with what, what to our eyes was essentially the simplest morphs, which were the albino, lavender albino, ultramel morphs. Okay, you're going to have to read those and let me know if it's important in a second. <laughs> oh, no, it is. And I was actually just about to interrupt you. Uh, Dr. Booth said that that leopard gecko it was lemon frost. Oh, yes. The lemon frost. Um, So, Hannah, um, we wanted to make sure that we weren't misrepresenting anything. Uh, Dr. Ryman's speculating just a little bit. Um, Talk to the mic. Basically, I was scratching my nose and did not want to do that in the microphone. (laughs) Thank you so much. I moved away to scratch my nose. Basically, you run a test out on a gel and the WT gene leaves a band at a certain distance. The albino gene band runs at a different distance. So a homozygous, you would only see one band, but in HETS, you're going to see two bands because of the two different genes present. Yes. What I'm trying to find for you right now, I have, I have my lab notebook in front of me. I'm trying to find an example of a test I did for someone that's actually, um, this is what happens when we too many doctors at one time. For <laughs> lavender albino, and it shows it shows it really clearly, but I've not I can't find it at the moment. I think it's in a different lab notebook. So it is very possible that we have already answered this question and And, and you were it, confused the first time. And it, it why is this important? Well, it depends on which way you're talking. No, no, no. Like, to, I, like, to them like or to... For, like, well, well, I mean, that's, you know, why is this important to Dr. Graves? Why is this important to Dr. Hannah? Like, why is this important to you? I, it's not just your work. Like, otherwise, you would be, you know, doing something else. But, like, what makes this what you pick? Yeah, so so I would, it, I would say that it's a variety and it's important in a variety of different ways. So one is that we find that the students are more engaged in class when they feel like they're at, when they know that they're actually making a discovery. So we literally before this project didn't know which mutations cause these morphs. And now we do because of the data that our students collected. That's cool. So that, that makes you know them more motivated to learn about the literature, to learn about the techniques. They're excited about the project. So it's an educational goal in a sense. Yeah. And then another goal is simply that, 
um, there are ball python breeders who would like to know this information because it would allow them to make morph combinations more easily if they could know for sure that their animal this, was And this would give this. Absolutely. That's pretty yeah. cool. In that, that last point, um, Hannah mentioned, it's like both of those are important points for me. One, you know, because I'm a science educator. So I'm looking for ways to teach my uh, future teachers how to, you know, teach in a way that's more engaging. But the, the second part is I own ball pythons. <laughs> I have a tall pheno. It would be very advantageous to me to know that the heads are either head albino or head tall feet. And we've got a test that can tell me that. So I've that way you can breed if you right want. Now. Right. I can sell it as head toffee, or if the if the test tells me the allele that they got was the albino allele, I can sell it as head um, albino, and that would be very, you know, that would be very satisfying for me as a um, a breeder. But I'm sure my customers would also, you know, kind of benefit from knowing, okay, this is definitely a head albino, um, and I can kind of move forward with that. That's cool. And like I said, that very well could have been brought up earlier. And I just like with everything at once, it didn't click. But um, that's really cool. So um, I would also just add one more thing. If you yeah. That, that in fact, we so there's like a, thir- a third reason, which is just that science doesn't know we as a collective group of scientists don't understand much about the genes that control coloration in reptiles. We know about humans because, or well, we know about mice and humans because people study them, but basically nobody is analyzing the genetics of reptiles. And the reason is that reptiles are hard to grow in the lab. They have long lifespans. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And essentially the ball pythons, because people will pay more for an interesting looking animal, essentially the United States is full of animals that could, that, that are like a, a resource for geneticists to learn about the coloration of reptiles that we wouldn't otherwise know about. Yeah, it's a country yeah. full of lab ex- lab assessments. Yeah, this no. Is- yeah. So, I so think I'm that's like cool. to, to use that word because so to me when I see an albino, I see a mutant, but I know to an owner they're not thinking of their animal as a mutant. So I don't want to say that the United States is full of mutant animals, but no, that's, so it's, it's like so my husband. Is. It's like my husband who my entire through my entire pregnancy referred to her as. A parasite. She was a parasite. Because of the definition of parasite. Ba- babies are parasites. Well, fetuses are parasites. <laughs> the whole time. People would look at him so weird when he would do something. Feeds like off that. the host and dies oh on the Oh my gosh. Um, so to go back through the chat, Travis, you're not being annoying. I mean, I'm sure that they are thoroughly enjoying the conversation um, with people so, that are definitely on their level. I have a question, Hannah. I, I, I know why Kyron is interested in this. I can't imagine prior to this you went, ooh. I really want to study snakes. Um, you're, you're sort of right. Although now that I'm in it, they're really interesting. So um, before this, I did not study snakes. I actually studied worms, which are a similar body plan, just much smaller. And the reason that I got interested in this was because I, when I first taught my genetics lab, I thought, this is boring. This is boring for the students because they're not discovering anything new. This is boring for me as the instructor because I know what the outcome to all these experiments is going to be. This is boring. I want my life to be more interesting. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to come up with a project where my students can actually collect new data that we can publish that the students will be excited about and that I will be excited about. That's so awesome. 
And then I went to have a drink with Kyron and he said to me, I have these snakes. And I was like, tell me more about them. And that's how it got started. That's cool. I can, All great ideas start from over a beer, right? I mean, yeah. We live in the South. We totally get that. Well, not in Magic Kyron. I, uh, I, I really got into corn snakes at one point just because I could play the genetics game and they were much cheaper than ball pythons. I could mix this uh-huh. and that. And, and I, I love working on Punnett Square because I'm a weird nerd and Punnett Squares are fun. So I totally get you going, well, I've got these animals. This would totally fit in with what we're doing and going that way. Yeah. Um, now, the, I assume the great thing about this is right now it's an undergrad program, undergrad program. But I'm assuming long term you could turn it into some sort of graduate program or turn it into something more. Because I'm just, I'm just thinking that if you expand this, this is a technically a business idea. It's a great way to raise money for a university yeah. or for anything like that along with yeah. also doing research. Yeah, so I don't um, – I may eventually, if we do a lot of genetic testing, need to charge people for the cost of supplies, which would be a, not a very big fee. It would be like $5, 10 $15 or something oh, like people that. People would pay that, no problem. Um, but I don't plan to start a company and make money. So, um, And all of our results are public. Like, we're going to make them public. So if somebody wanted to start a testing service, you know, as a scientist, I view my job as – Gener- like learning about the world and telling people about it. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I, you don't, don't expect to see me CEO of ball Python <laughs> genetic testing.com. Um, but I do hope to expand the project in the sense of working with more morphs and getting more students involved, potentially outside of the class I teach. That's awesome. A couple of comments from our listeners. Victor laughed and said that we've opened Pandora's box with all these questions and all the, the different things, but he said it's it's making very interesting conversation. Well, and they started, really with, they started with the one species that would definitely get the most interest, being a ball pilot. I mean, that's, that's the number one in the hobby, especially as far as morphs, and it's definitely going to be... I, I, at this point, have you had people reach out to you and basically say that what you're doing is impossible? Because I just assume with something like this, people... Get, We'll play it down sometimes and say, eh, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, I have not had that. What I've had is people asking me to do things that are really outside of this. Like someone will say, oh, that's so cool that you're doing ball pythons. I have a dog that might be a German Shepherd mix, but I'm not sure. Can I send you a sample? Uh-huh. Or they'll say, um, I have, you know, uh, I forgot what somebody said, sent, emailed me the other day, a certain, like a, a, some type of salamander and they wanted sex determination test on it. And that's an interesting question, but I don't have the resources to also be working. Well, that's on that. funny because because Warren Booth said, "Yeah, uh, sex determination yeah. was determined over many beers." So yeah. Yeah, and Sean Gray posted that uh, he was driving earlier, which is why he wasn't really that involved in the chat, but that things are making a lot more sense now after hearing you, because he's listening to this live in his car, so he said things are making a lot more sense. He had a couple of other questions, though. This was. He's the guy who um, had the, the paper about the XY in um, in boas and pythons. Is that am I correct on that? Sean did leopard geckos. No, Sean, yeah, Sean just bred. Yeah, he yeah, he's he's not a doctor. Uh, <laughs> Warren, very knowledgeable. Not that there is anything against. There's not not being or being a doctor. But there is do- Warren Booth. Am I? Yeah, oh, that, that, that's definitely. Yeah, possible. that's Warren Booth. Warren Warren does work with boas. Um, I'm just, I'm trying to catch That's up. That's a good question Sean just had. Yes, oh. so Warren is right. Everything is possible. It comes down to cost. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and Warren said yes. That was correct. That is. Yes. Um, that is somebody said, are there limitations as to what genes could be identified? And I would say that um, a limitation is that, so I, I don't know if this will be controversial if I say this, that 
There are some things that ball python breeders or owners call a distinct morph that to me as a gen as a geneticist looks like there's that the genetics are more complex than just a single single gene there um, where there's a lot of variation both within what animals are calling the morph and not and i think those are ones where um determining which animals were that morph or not would be a um a, a, a difficulty a challenge in the project yeah i would love to see to be able to say yes Desert Ghost, and I've already forgotten. Yeah, so De- Desert Ghost is one of the ones that right. comes to mind that I feel like there's there's quite a bit of variation, and and yeah, so well, and it's it's weird. So, in the beginning of all this genetic stuff with ball pythons, they were they were coming in on like one or two shipments from Africa, and then getting spread across the country, and then bred, and someone in California, New York, and Florida all had the same thing, and they called it three different things. It's gotten a yeah, little. Yes, oh, yes, 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 exactly. So it's gotten a little better now, but there's still a lot of. Yeah, if I breed that thing over there, you're saying is one, and I breed this over here, you're saying is different. When I breed them together, I get one. So it obviously can't be different That's if right. I'm getting one. Yeah. So when we when we um, do our genetic analyses, we typically lump together things that when you breed them together, you get the same thing. So um, and that helps us with our genetics. Yeah. But, our, so. Because you were talking about the lines and the markers. Um, and so in my mind, it's like a pregnancy stick. Well, it's, it's, a it's, line. A, it's a gym. Obviously, that's not what it looks like. But in my mind, that's what I visualized. <laughs> James is over here like, I'm going to divorce you after No, this no, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> you're, not wrong. you're not wrong. So that's, a, that's what's called, I think, a pregnancy test is typically some type of laminar flow assay. Okay. Flowing things over something, and okay. that's surprised how much of biology is just like m- moving things through something. And the the test that we do is is really similar. So we essentially um, we create what you would what would look to you like a piece of Jello. It's technically it's made out of what you what is sold in the grocery store as vegetarian Jello. Okay, and then we um, we collect DNA from the animals. And we do a biochemical reaction that um, basically amplifies, makes more of a particular region of the genome. So we get a lot of DNA, but only corresponding to one particular gene. So you're using and PCR, then, I'm assuming? Yes. Yes, we're using PCR, yes. Oh, and I know then, what that is. Yep. So <laughs> we, we force that stuff to move through this jello-like substance. And depending on how big the DNA is, it can either move fast or it can move slow. Because if it's bigger, it just can't move as quickly. And, um, and then when, and then we look at where it is just like a pregnancy test and, um, it gives us information about the genome, so, about the genome. So you, so you had to on. have seen this in like basic biology. It's, the, it's like a blue gel. Do you know how long ago that was? Yeah, but it's like, a blue gel with lines no. on it. You don't remember those pictures at all? No. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I made I an A in the advanced class and then I moved on cause I knew I didn't need it for my degree. Y'all didn't do like electrogel fluoresis and I don't even know what that is. You hook it up. To like, nope. No. That was all you. Can you guys see that? Yes. So it's a bunch of lines. It, I mean, it doesn't look exactly like a pregnancy test, but you get the idea that we're seeing black stuff or right. not black stuff. So that was my next question. Like James was saying, you, you have a guy in California and Florida and in New York, and they all have possibly the same genetic morph, but they're calling it different things. Do those morphs look the same on your test so that you can say, oh, we know that this is this, even though it's three different things? We know the it's answer, really the same thing. Right. So we, we don't know until we analyze the morph. And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. So let me give you some examples. Toffee and candy 
um, are the same genetically. Okay. Albino, there's actually two different alleles for albino, but breeders and owners didn't know that. And so when we do the genetics for albino, we have to look for two of those because one or the other or a combination of them all gives the albino trait. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, Sean definitely said this could absolutely so change our entire hobby. The, and For the albino, the, those two alleles, same spot on the DNA or two different locations and have to happen at the same time? So they're in the same gene, but they're in different locations in the gene. They're actually pretty close together. So um, they're like... Uh, 30 base pairs apart. So it would be like if the gene is a sentence, you know, one of them is in the third word of the sentence and the other one's in the fifth word of the sentence would be an analogy. Yeah. yeah that, that's another thing you'll, you'll find talking with, uh, with snake people and non-science people is that uh, you have people that barely passed high school biology <laughs> trying to explain genetics to people. And it gets very confusing when you start throwing in incomplete dominance and recessive and dominant. And so a lot of that gets really confusing as well for, the general public because you know they're hearing these words for the first time uh let's try to read what warren warren said they can be different mutations of the same gene through independent evolutionary paths uh yeah. same oh so same genes and likely different alleles of the same genes yeah. Yeah. and hence compatible and hence they're compatible yeah. and travis said he was surprised there's only two for albino sorry to let you down that we travis. know of so far right yeah uh, so we had a total of 27 animals in our study that were either albino, toffee, candy, or some combination of those. It's in theory possible that if we collected another 20, 30 samples, we might find an additional mutation somewhere. But so far, it looks like it's just those. It's, it's crazy. I just I think of this the this being used for hets is going to change how people sell stuff from now on, especially like. Because you can go the, – the crazy thing is if someone goes to PetSmart and buys a snake, right? They go buy a ball python from PetSmart. A and the fancy way, ball a fan, python. They label it a fancy ball python. It's whatever <laughs> color and they have no clue. But they could take that shed, send to you and go, oh, this fancy ball python has this, this, and this in it. Right. These and markers. I, I only paid 300 bucks for it. Well, there would be no more pos heads. Yeah. It, oh, uh-uh. I mean, you'd, or no more 66% heads. It would right. be, you know, here's the paper – Showing what the heads are. Which is good because that those numbers really confuse the general public. When you tell somebody it's a sixty six percent head or a fifty percent head, they don't understand right what that means. And, and when you're trying you're trying it's chance. It's a fifty percent chance yeah. of it not be it's not that like half of it is head and half of it's not head. <laughs> right. It's not how that works. Yeah, that took me a little bit to grasp when we first started dating. <laughs> yeah, I left, was like, I don't understand. The, it's the not left, half the left yeah. hemipene is head and the right uh, hemipene is not. Yeah. You gotta hope or, it breeds with I've the right been there. one. You know, like the big argument right now is that uh stranger and I think cypress are the same thing. And because people are saying if you breed a stranger to a stranger, you can get a suma, which proves out that they're cypress. And this, you know, if this was got advanced to that point where you could prove that that's the same gene. One's an inexpensive gene and one's a really expensive gene. So here's my question. It would definitely when we're talking allelic genes. Because um, yeah. there's, there's many things in the bell complex. The blue-eyed leucista complex yeah. gives you a white snake. Yeah. And there's many yeah. different things that obviously look different. So uh, yeah. Lesser and Mojave definitely look different. Can y'all see that in a genetic test? These three things that are all allelic and all end up giving you the same thing. Can you see those things on your genetic test? They are different from each other. So the answer there is a little bit complicated. So we haven't analyzed that particular complex yeah. of morphs, so I can't say for sure. Um, but what we see as a geneticist, what I would just the way I would describe that morph is that there's variation in the morph. So even in 
like a super Mojave or if you mix a Mojave with a lesser, you know, you, you get, th there's some variability in what the animal actually looks like. That variability could come from two different sources. It could come from the actual allele itself, or it could come from other pieces in the genome that are not that gene, but are other things that are contributing to the phenotype. Just like and polygenic so, differences. Yes, yes, exactly. So um, it could be that those are all the same allele in one gene, but there's other differences on the same chromosome or elsewhere in the genome that are contributing to those differences. And in that case, we would know, for example, that the animal was, um, was one of those alleles, but we wouldn't necessarily be able to tell exactly what it would end up looking like. The other possibility is that they are different alleles of the same gene. In that case, we would be able to make a better prediction. I, I recognize that's not a very simple answer, but um, well, like, I guess the summary is uh, it, it, it might be more complicated than you think. Well, that's the whole thing about genetics. None of it is – as much as we'd like to simplify, like, this is albino, this is not albino. It, that's the very simplified version, but there's a lot going on there. And it's not always – like you said with albino, it's not always just one spot on the DNA that changes that. Right, so it, it it's a complex thing. It's at least up to two spots now. It could possibly be more. Albino, there's at least two spots. For now, there's at least two. So uh, Victor said that he always thought the 66% was a greater chance to hit the odds. Yeah, it's a 66% and chance. I will admit, like, I... Yes, we have several different types of snakes in our house. And yes, I could take care of them if I needed to. And I could tell you a little bit about each one of them, not genetically, but just about the species as a whole. But I always get so excited whenever like a, a, a litter of Samboas are born because I'm like, all right, what, what kind of babies are we having in this litter? Because we don't ever know what's going to come. Well, no, no, no. You, well, you don't know. I don't I, ever know. I, but I, 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 know, James I don't know knows what what's coming out of the litter. So, you know, we'll have normals and we'll have anneries and, and things like that. So, by knowing the traits, obviously it doesn't guarantee that you'll have this offspring. Yeah. So, what you're saying is if we had this test, it would make it less exciting for you. Well, would it, well, but on one hand, for the people that want to know specifically what they're breeding for specific breeding projects, it would might it's make everything a, better. Well, it's still an odds game. I mean, you're still talking odds when they breed. You know, it's a 50% chance true. this will happen for you're this right. one baby, right. and then a 50% chance it'll happen again for this one, and so on and so forth. Um, so, I mean, it's still, but this would definitely clarify. There's no more of like, all right, we'll only breed these two things together and see if it's got this gene because I've got a few snakes like that that I'm raising up, and then in two years when I breed them together and an albino doesn't pop out, I'm going to be kind of heartbroken a little bit because, I, I mean, I knew there was only there was a chance it was head albino, but it would be nice to be able to go, okay, it definitely is. Uh, so uh, Dr. Booth said, in that case, um, simple breeding experiments with unrelated females would determine that through breaking breeding experiments. So I'm not sure if that had to do with us. It melts my, my brain sometimes. Or what was going on. That may have been what was going on in the chat. That may have had nothing to do with our conversation. But on a nope. better topic, Sean Gray wants to know if there's a place where he can make donations to help with this research. Yeah, so he's <laughs> asking that. And, you know, scientists are not used to receiving donations. Um, so I have asked the um, head of my department if I'm able to receive donations. And the answer is yes, but I need to figure out the logistics of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. There you go, Sean. Well, when you know, let us know, and we'll share and put like the information. Darren's, Darren's question. As a scientist, do the common names bother you? Do you tend to, when you're in the lab, are you referring to these by some sort of more scientific name based on just the gene itself, like gene X or gene whatever, or are you using our ridiculous names we use in the hobby? I'm, 
I'm using the science names. And um, it was actually really hard for me to learn the logic of, um, of the morph names. For example, yellow belly versus ivory, how ivory is the super yellow belly. And also even just the word the super, super instead of homozygous. Yeah, I, I, it, it took me a long time to, to understand what was going yeah. on there. Um, so, but, but now I, I guess I feel pretty comfortable with it. And I would say if I were to change one thing about the naming of morphs, it would be what we talked about earlier, how there's some morphs that have a bunch of different names because they were found by different people and they're actually the same thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Trust me, that, that drives people in the hobby nuts also. Um, so Warren Booth said that was in relation to the gene complexes. It would be breaking gene complexes. Oh, he, yeah. Okay. Yes, he's right. He yes. also yes. said that you could set up a gift account. For the, oh, for for the, the donations. donations. Okay. So I make a note of that. He said your accounts department can set that up easily. They may expect some level of overhead, yes, however. I just, um, I'm just trying to get them to respond to my email. <laughs> I, I can see where that would be hard, yes. She's not to that step yet, but now you know what steps. Uh, it, it, he said at that point it's similar to any grant that you would receive. So, so that'll Kai, definitely help out. I will say with, you know, with some of the morphs, so one of the morphs we studied was Ultramel, um, and there are some other morphs that look like they are, are kind of similar to things that reduce the, the pigment melanin, the black to brown coloration. And so those examples are um, Monarch and Rainbow are some examples. And I've been trying to collect samples of those, but some breeders have told me that they're hesitant to send me a sample because if I find genetically that it's actually just an Ultramel, then their animals will be worthless. Yeah, and that, so uh-huh. that's been a challenge for is is that breeders in some contexts may not actually want to learn the genetics. Yeah, that's the one problem I was thinking because you're gonna you're gonna find lots of breeders where this will be a big a big thing for them. But I, uh, I'm not saying that those are ultramel. I, I actually there's several other genes that they certainly could be. So if you are listening and you have a rainbow or a monarch, definitely I, I would like to have samples. But that that is a challenge. I do know somebody with a lot of monarchs, so maybe I can reach out to her and and get some stuff sent to you with some monarch. DNA because she's got like a hundred mm-hmm. of them. So um, let me ask you, Kyron, since Kyron, what do you plan on doing? Is this just a small hobby for you or do you want to get more snakes and breed more and do more kind of moving away from the no, genetic stuff? Actually, I, so um, right now um, my collection stands at 22. That's not um, bad. That's not, yeah, that's a pretty yeah, good little size. Bad. It, look, it's it's all relative, right? Yes, oh, my wife yes. was like, he's got way too many. He's got 21 <laughs> more than he should have. Um, but uh, my goal is to just, I'm just, I'm just doing it as a hobby. Um, and I just like the way some of the morphs look. In particular, um, I've grown a, a pretty strong affinity for clown and, and yes. uh, for um, the albino candy toffee complex and i would love i've got a project where i would love to combine those two into um you know the double a double recessive in that regard but in terms of like expanding beyond the numbers that i have i want to keep it down to like maybe 20 because the thing is um it's easy for me to kind of maintain that as a hobby and just you know kind of a break from my normal day-to-day activity. I mean, I come in my snake room. I'm in my snake room now. It's kind of getting dark because the sun's going down. But I come in my snake room as a kind of um, a de-stressor. Yeah. If I go beyond, if I go too, too, um, if I get too many snakes beyond 20, all of a sudden the dynamic changes. Now you have another I job. A bit more time, you know, 
Yeah. And so um, it is a hobby for me. But at the same time, it's it's also kind of looking for angles to provide experiences for my students to kind of learn genetics in a, a way that um, like Hannah and I have been saying the whole time isn't as boring as the way we learned it. Yeah. Have, have you bred anything yet? Have you reproduced anything or are you still in the grow up phase with all your snakes? So um, actually some of the, the, the data that um, is in our paper comes from some of the, the um, pairings that I've done with um So I've got a, um, one in particular that I'm thinking about is a Azantic VPI that's hep for albino. Um, and I crossed her with my albino, um, which obviously is homozygous albino. So we got that het and that homozygous. And us knowing that phenotypically, we were able to analyze the sheds and, and help us kind of identify the mutations uh, or particular patterns in albino that we can look for to tell whether um, any future hets are albino or not albino. Um, right now, she's, um, I bred her to, this season, I bred her to my tof- black pastel Tofino. So she's got, I do maternal incubation, so I can't really tell how many eggs she's got. But I know when those eggs comes when those eggs come out, some of them are going to look normal. Some yeah. of them are going to be look like pastel. But I'm not going to know if they're het albino or het toffee. And so I'm planning on sending those sheds to Hannah for this semester, so the students can tell me, which would be cool because oh, that's awesome. Can kind of bring them in they could connect with the, the ball pythons oh, yeah. and it's like hey we figured out that <laughs> these ball pythons had these many heads yeah That's you can hold cool. it you can hold the snake in your hand and go this is the snake that this dna sample is from um that's really awesome i also he said the magic phrase uh, maternal incubation which is is weird because like in the hobby everybody's like they just want to shove them right into an incubator right away and you said screw it let's see if this works i think that's cool which is like what sean just said yeah this this would make the world of all pythons drop from ten thousand morphs to a (laughs) hundred it would if if, if their if their dna database showed that it definitely (laughs) definitely would shrink that morph pool of course you know you gotta love warren's answer like only 22 yeah warren does not have only 22 (laughs) he has more um so sean actually had a really (laughs) great question Times five. Yeah. Are you able to tell the differences between recessive, dominant, incomplete dominance, et cetera? So when we learn the genetics of a morph, it actually doesn't tell us really about whether the morph is recessive, dominant, incomplete, dominant, and so on. That information comes essentially from what's already known, which is what the animals look like in uh, different combinations. Um, so I guess I would say it, it can be really interesting, though, to learn the genetics and learn that a particular mutation causes either a recessive trait or a dominant trait. And that can be that can tell us some interesting things about how that mutation affects the cell. Awesome. Uh, uh, Dr. Warren Booth asked if the paper had been published. I know you said you were going to publish your findings. I didn't know if that is that something that's ongoing, like there's a link that they can go check it out as you update. Yes. Um, so we have, we have posted a preprint. So what that means is that we wrote our, um, our data into a paper. We posted it on a site called BioArchive, which is where scientists post papers before they've been officially peer-reviewed. We've submitted it to a journal, and right now it is being reviewed. So I can email him the um, 
link to our preprint. I'll also email him the preprint that was posted about the piebald morph, which was not done by us. It was done by another group. So he can read both of those type things. And I will gladly like uh, post any of that information you want to share with us what on is- our Facebook page. Cause I know a lot of our people listening would love to go and just like be able to read that themselves. Yep. We, and we also have a website where we describe our study. I would say in language that would be easier for an, um, a non-expert to read. So um, there's both of those resources available for people. That's awesome. So have you found uh, with your undergrads, how many of them came into this being reptile people ahead of time? Any of them, or are they becoming reptile people or just enjoying the process? So none of them are reptile people. The people in my class, they sign up for the class. The title of the class does not say genetics (laughs) lab in reptiles. It just says genetics lab. So how many people drop your class when they find out it's reptiles? Nobody. I've had had anybody. That's awesome. That's Um, awesome. A lot of the students in my class want to go on to medical school or physician assistant school or other careers in healthcare and medicine. And so we read a lot of scientific articles related to albinism in humans or other disorders in humans. So I try to relate it to human biology, which they are really interested in. And I will say that the students who have worked in it in my lab, uh, Kyron, you remember, so I had a student, Autumn, who um, worked on the paper, and she actually, um, you, Kyron came in to show us some of his animals. We tried to get some DNA from the mouths of the animals, and she was initially quite hesitant. I would say she would probably have described herself as someone who was afraid of snakes before then. But, you know, she she did just fine. And I think that that experience was a good experience for her in just becoming more comfortable with something that she shouldn't that she has no reason to be afraid of. That's awesome. Very cool. I was waiting to see if I had any other questions. I can hear you. I can hear someone driving down the street. The bass. The bass through my head. Yeah, yeah I, I can, can too. too. I don't know if they can hear it on the The problem with living in a neighborhood. Ugh, I hate it. I'm waiting to hear the dogs downstairs. My old neighborhood, all my neighbors would be asleep by now. There'd be no noise. <laughs> all uh, of our neighbors were over 70 at our old house, and now we're in suburbia with families. So it's very different. <laughs> Difference, one word you can use. Um, so uh, my brain went blank. I had something in my, and then it went blank. I don't know what to say now. I guess I can ask if anybody else has any other questions in our chat. I have, the- I have questions not related to the study, just general questions for them, but I'm going no, to wait. No, go this. ahead. Ask them. Well, I, but I, I feel like we're on track with this conversation, and we're my never brain on, look, cannot go our back Our podcast is never on track with this. anything. <laughs> I think the one thing that's funny is, so the two of you don't understand, most of our listeners know that I, I don't like ball pythons. I mean, I own some because somebody I- gave them to me. But yeah, I, in preparation for this podcast, I actually listened to a couple oh, of sweet Jesus. <laughs> well, I, I had no idea who you were, so I thought, you know, what if he's very politically incorrect? And I, you know, who knows? I just wanted to double check. And I happened to listen to an episode where you said you didn't like Paul Python. I don't. So I, I did know that coming in. I do, well, I've been in the hobby long enough. I, I've told people before, it's, it's, I don't think I dislike Paul Pythons as much as I dislike Paul Python people. So you're not in the hobby. So you, it's, you haven't, I, it's a well, weird group. You did say that you appreciated that for a person who's never owned a reptile before, that it would be like a good starter animal. Yeah. So that was nice that you, you know, you yeah, recognize they, that there are people for whom it would be an excellent pet. And so, what's, what's so really, Hannah, when are, you, when are you getting yours? <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I was so going to say, Dr. Graves has this plan. <laughs> I'm going to give her one of my hatchlings. Uh-huh. She's going to raise that up. That's going to be her pet in her, uh, yeah, her I am, office at EMU. 
I knew this was coming. Love it. So what he what he always leaves out on our podcast is that our ten year old daughter, when she will walk around the shows, because all the vendors know her, so we know she's safe. I don't want people thinking we just let our Before kid her, roam. No. Um, we can always make a new one. She always. I mean, <laughs> free range. I mean, pretty much. That's pretty much what vendor kids are like at yeah. the herb shows. Like everybody knows who they are, and it's all good. But she'll take pictures of cool snakes that she sees it's at always tables. Always ball pythons. Always ball always. pythons. And she'll send, her are, to, she'll send them to him, like text them to him because she's allowed to have her phone if she's out and about. And yeah. he's like, why? Why is it always ball of pythons? Of all the snakes, it's, it's ball pythons. <laughs> Every time. It's so great. But it's always really expensive ball pythons. Like, yeah. we have a gift. We can pick the most expensive one off the table, hands down. My kids spent $100 on, on one culture of isopods this weekend. I can't do that. I've, yeah, I've tried a couple that. of times, and I can't ever pull the string. Like, yeah. I just... It's his money. So. I know, but I can't do it with my money. <laughs> one of the reasons that ball pythons were a good option for us is because of their popularity. You know, we didn't want to choose something where it would be difficult for us to collect sheds. Absolutely. And because ball pythons are so popular, it means that we have a lot of opportunity for people to send us samples. Absolutely. So the popularity for us is a real benefit. Mm-hmm. When Victor asks, and I, and I know that y'all are early in this study, so I can't imagine y'all thought this far, but will you eventually do a similar study with other reptiles? Or maybe look at other, uh, like boa constrictors, and see if maybe their genome lines up very similar with the ball pythons. And Corn snakes is the first thing I thought of. Yeah, so possibly. So one of the... Another item that made ball pythons a feasible study for us is that even though the genome of ball python had, had not been sequenced at the time we started, there was a genome available for Burmese python, which we knew was closely related enough that we could use it essentially as a guide. So um, it would be feasible for us potentially to look at other reptiles, but the choice would probably be informed based on what the genomic resources were available for those other species. That's real. That's yeah. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, and I think another piece that um, is appealing is the fact that there's so many directions we can go with this that we can potentially keep it fresh enough that the students are seeing how the process of science actually works. Because a lot of times we have a we we have as professors we have a challenge with kind of recreating that in our classrooms. We can do it in our labs, but recreating in our classrooms, it's it, it tends to be a little bit more difficult to kind of make things authentic. And with this project, every, every year we're going to have something authentic or, you know, authentic enough that it's not it, it's going to be different from semester to semester oh absolutely well, and i think we really need to get you a ball python with four or five genes in it and go all right guys here's the shed i'm not telling you what's in it go <laughs> yes, yes and i will also say that when we first started this project we went pretty slowly so the very first semester of students that worked on this project um the only part of it they worked on and they didn't do this for the whole semester which is part of the semester the question was can we get dna out of snake skin what is the best method for doing so? And what is the quality of the DNA that comes out? And then the next semester was, can, is the genome of Burmese python close enough to ball python that we can use it as a resource? And we had to establish those early um, questions before we knew whether we could continue on as a project. So each semester, students are doing something differently, different and building on what the previous semester of students did. Can I ask how y'all got the DNA out of the shed? What well, 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 y'all found the best method oh, for doing nope. that? Oh, nope. That face right there says, if she tells you, she has to kill you. That right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, the very, so the first step, and the step that is honestly the most time-consuming of the whole thing, is washing the sheds. 
So I will tell you that people are very different in um, the cleanliness of the sheds they send me. I can see so that. Some people, some people, they'll, they'll email me and they say, I'm going to send a shed to you. I just washed it off and it's hanging to dry in my bathroom over the, the, like the towel rack or something. As soon as it's dry, I'm going to fold it up and send it to you in an envelope. And I'll get this like perfectly folded, like almost looks like an iron shed, like beautiful, clean. And then other people send me a crusty, wadded up, insect infested, Something that you have to quarantine before you can bring to your collection. I'll tell you this. So when I first started collecting sheds, I was just keeping them in my office. And I was just had to have these bags full of sheds. And I thought, well, they're dry. Like, nothing's, you know, and this should be no problem. And then I had my student come in. And I said, okay, we need to organize these. Each one needs to get an ID number to enter this information into our database. And she she pulled out some bags. And uh, there were all these insects in them. Because the sheds had had larvae, like larvae insects on the shed, and then they had hatched inside the bag in my office. So, like, we couldn't even open the bag because it's full of insects. So, now the procedure is as soon as we receive a shed, we put it in the freezer so that if there are insects on it, they they will die. So, how much of a shed, how much skin do you need for this to work? Yeah, so for just a simple test, we only need a a little piece of, of skin, maybe this big, so just a few inches square. Um, but we do prefer to have the whole shed if possible, because sometimes students mess up, then they can go back to it. Or sometimes for unknown reasons, um, you know, a procedure doesn't work. And so um, it is always better for us if we can have more. But if somebody like was only able to collect a little piece of their shed, I would still like to have it. Because I know Kyron's probably familiar with this. The, the problem with sheds is you have some snakes who use their shed as a, as a diaper. Uh, mm-hmm. They will shed in and... <laughs> Right away, they shit and piss inside of it. And you're like, well, that's I, I assume you don't want that one. Um, <laughs> and then I'll have some who will shed, and they'll dump the whole thing in the water bowl, and so you're just pulling out this soggy mess. Uh, I like if, the ones that are inside out with like all this aspen when you open them. Those are fun. They're good if you eat them early, and they're still wet, and you can unfold them because it's like an inside-out sock. So mm-hmm. if someone's sending it to you, what is the best way in which they can package it and get it ready and send to you so I, I want to minimize the amount of work that people do. And what I prefer is just make it dry. So even if it's really dirty, if you pull it out of the water bowl, just let it dry before you send it to me. Because if it's wet, it um, that can basically cause it to rot and then the DNA can degrade. So as long as it's dry, I'm happy to wash off all the dirt to freeze the insects so they don't um, pupate, all of that stuff. I just would prefer a dry shed. And if it's in pieces, I don't care either. It doesn't have to be in a hole. It doesn't have to be completely intact. If it's all shredded up into pieces, that's also fine. Yes, and, and anybody listening, please do not clean it with any cleaning material because that could also mess up the DNA as well. I oh, absolutely. So. It could, although somebody told me, what did they say? Oh, they, they were washing their snake with, like, soap or something like that. And, and I told her I thought it would, it would probably be still fine. So, so there are different chemicals that are used if they have mites or if there's... Yeah, but that's not gonna mess up the DNA. That just kills them. No, but if they're having a, if they have problems shedding, so we had somebody on that talked about that. It was like a soak that they would soak their snake in, and it would help with the sheds. Um, a couple of things, real quick, from the chat, just because I'm I'm trying to be the one to keep up with it. Darren Watson asked how you track the the sheds that you get and so James asked him to clarify so basically if Darren sends you a shed how do you know that one belongs to him and how do you keep the record of it yeah so we we keep each shed in a ziploc bag and it has an id number on it so it gets assigned a unique id number and then we have a database where we know that shed 
257 corresponds to such and such animal from so and so. And a lot of times the people, people, you know, have names for their pets. Breeders don't always name their animals, but um, we just, we just have the ID number and then we have any information they give us about the morph, the sex, um, when the shed, when the animal shed, if they know all that information. That's so it's, really a, cool. it's a pretty simple system, and we just keep them all. They're all in. So the, the small bags go in bigger bags, and so it's basically like a filing cabinet of sheds. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, yep. so there you go. This is this is how I um, pack up my sheds. So you can see, I got a Ziploc bag, and then I've got. Can you all see that? We yes, can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's really clear too. That's awesome. Bam! We make it bigger. Oh, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> On our website, we do have a, a page dedicated with instructions for people um, for what what information they should include. Awesome. Gotcha. So Sean likes to give James a lot of grief because James is a snake guy, but there are other snake there are other reptiles out there. There James. may be other reptiles, but the only ones they need to work with are snakes. Those are the only ones that people well, care about. Yeah, so that's so that's really interesting because some of the information that I've been learning in the literature about just structure of skin. It's not actually that well known for snakes, and so some of the information I'm getting is is in studies in turtles and other reptiles, and that's all been really informative for snakes. So he's definitely right. I mean, I know there was a joke, but oh yeah. But. <laughs> so um, earlier you mentioned something about you were getting a mouth swab from a snake. Yeah. So, so can you use that? We we tried initially to get mouth swabs because we wanted to compare. Is the quality of the DNA um, better, worse, different than a shed? Um, and what we found is that we get much less DNA from a mouth swab. The quality is a little better, but it turns out that the quality of the DNA from a shed is, is basically good enough for most, most of what we want to do. And the hardest part about the mouth swab is persuading the animal. Is it to getting it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. so we, we kind of abandoned that as an option because it, it just was too difficult. Anyone that's had to assist feed well, a force feed a snake knows it's it's not the easiest to get the mouth open. No. Well, and not only that, you know, getting a, a shed, that's far part of life. Or I mean, that's invasive. Yes, absolutely. It's a lot less stressful. So Dr. Booth said that they use the, I'm not sure if everyone has this, Kaijin kit with DTT. That's what they use for hundreds, if not thousands of samples. Yep. Yeah. So Kaijin is a company that makes a lot of molecular biology products and they make kits that is basically like a collection of chemicals where you follow a recipe to get the DNA. And then DTT is a chemical. I'm, I'm not sure why he would use that for um, extracting DNA, but apparently uh, that works for him. So we, um, we use a protocol that we basically created ourselves from some publications that is very inexpensive, and that's um, how we can do it in the undergraduate lab course. We don't have a big budget for doing oh, yeah. science in the classroom. So we use a procedure that uses magnetic beads where we um, essentially mix the stuff that comes out of the shed with magnetic beads and the DNA sticks to the beads. And then we have a magnet where we pull the magnetic beads to one side and the DNA is attached to them. And that's how we get the DNA. That sounds out. way that's more fun. So cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey Booth, you like should do that. Like the science experiment side of me is like, this is fun. <laughs> I like magnets. It's like yeah. when you make your own ice cream in a bag. <laughs> okay. Maybe not yeah. that. <laughs> And and actually, there are there are. I'm sure that you can find YouTube videos of people extracting DNA in a bag too. You can do it with household chemicals as well. What? Yeah, I've done that before in biology lab with uh, strawberries. Yep. You can do it with yeah, strawberries. Yeah, you, oh, yeah. cool! And then you precipitate it with isopropyl alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. And you pull this big string of DNA. You can do it with your cheek cells and stuff. I, mean, I, I so I've seen that, and I've always wondered why people use strawberries because I feel like strawberries are so delicious, and I would have <laughs> chosen like something that I would n- not want to waste. I want to say I saw once yeah. it had something to do with 
the amount of DNA. I don't know. It was something to do why it was easier. But we also did cheek, uh, in cheek swabs and got the same result with human DNA. So I don't, I don't know. But I think I remember you doing this. You had like a little tube and you were yeah, like, hey, look, my, my DNA is in this tube. Yeah. It's in a box somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so if you ever do one of those tests like 23andMe or Ancestry testing, they'll, ten, they'll send you a swab and then you rub it on your cheek and you send it back to them and they'll get your DNA out of the swab. Yeah, shed, I assume sh- uh, just a shed is so much easier. And it's it's so much easier to collect from just the general public because if you were trying to do a swab, you'd have to send out a kit, they'd have to try and do it, and you have to hope they don't get other stuff on it. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. And another good thing about the sheds is that we can learn some information about the morph. So, for example, with the albino versus non-albino, we can know whether the, you know, if we get a shed and somebody claims their animal's albino, at the sh- if the shed is from a normal animal or an animal that's not albino, you can tell that from the shed. So we can get a little bit of information confirming that the the, you know, the person had their morph mostly correct. Dr. Warren Booth is the crusher of hopes and dreams. That's what he is tonight. <laughs> we use magnetic beads for size selection in our genomic libraries. By the yeah. way, the magnet was $1,000, so it's a so fancy right. magnet. <laughs> so, yes. So... Um, so we, so he's right that the, the magnets that a lot of um, well-funded molecular biology labs use are <laughs> that's, so well-funded. Like that, that is that is warm booth right there. Get I it, Warren. You got money. So what we actually made our own um, basically apparatus. So we bought magnets online for very inexpensive, and then we hot glued them. Oh no, bro! No, <laughs> there she goes. For for every student, and so um, it works great. And so uh, we also have magnets, and ours were less expensive. That's so cool, though. <laughs> Suck it, Warren. This is what I'm talking about—the DIY of science, right here. They they YouTubed how to do this shit and made a lab. <laughs> <Take it. laughs> this is great. Oh, uh, we haven't even had him on yet. You can't tell him suck it yet. I know, but it's it's fun. Funny. Uh, well, he was running earlier, and he was like, "I can't really type because I'm trying to run." I'm like, "What is with people and exercise? It's a thousand degrees outside." If I'm running. Something's chasing me. Y'all need to. Run I tell also. my students every year, if you see me running, you better follow close because there is something coming. <laughs> I don't play. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask this: Is what you do? Easy enough, and I don't say cheap enough, but Warren is still running. Is it cost-effective enough to be able to scale it down to, say, a high school biology lab that could afford it if they wanted to also try this? Um, for the tests that can be identified on a, on, by the size of a band, as we talked about earlier, the answer is yes. There are so, – so the type of mutation that an animal has in some ways dictates the type of test you need to use. And for many types of mutations, yes, it could be used in a high school biology class. There are some that are going to be more complicated. So in the future, I see high school teachers being able to purchase a kit. That comes with like with a shed or with that. And- yeah, that you guys have put together for them. <laughs> That says you, this, you're giving them more work now. They this, don't want more work. This could be five years down the road. It doesn't have to be now. This is a good undergraduate project for someone to put together. Put together so kits that could be used yeah, in local high schools. Ones. Yeah. So I, I told this. I described this project to a friend of mine who is um, a vet, and he said, "Oh, you could sell that as a kit." And so yes, yeah, too. But I don't. Again, I don't have plans to start a company of um, uh, all Python high schools. Kit, so the Girl so, Scout, I'd be, happy, I'd be happy to provide someone else with all the information they would need. The, to. the Girl Scout troop leader in me is like, How can we fundraise? And this well, is how you see, fundraise. The business part of me is like, <laughs> so the business part of me is like, I know a lot of people with ball pythons, 
and I can just get the information, and I can start a whole business where I just sell kits to other science. Teams. I mean, there you go, James. And we never have to use another strawberry ever. And again. you can you can donate a percentage to their research. A percentage of every kit you sell gets donated to their research. Totally worth it. <laughs> then I get people to just to map the genome of my snakes. I, I would love to see a poster of like the morph and then the bands, like the little picture of the bands that go with each each oh, one. Oh yeah. I, I did. I posted. So there was somebody. Um, I don't know his last name. He, he's he's known to me as Steve P from someplace in Idaho who wanted me to test his animal for lavender albino. And I I posted his test on Facebook and I I put the picture of the gel and said here's your here's your test. Your animal is not heterozygous for lavender albino. <laughs> Crushed his hopes Sad and dreams. Day. <laughs> <laughs> here's a picture to make you cry. Now have a good day. Oh, that's so funny. Oh man, I just I, I it. There's so many. You could just imagine like this test going in such wrong ways. It's like those ones where uh, someone doesn't realize they're adopted, and then they do the test, and they realize their DNA doesn't match their parents. So this person spends ten thousand dollars on this het whatever. You just got really dark there, man. Then they spend ten thousand dollars on this het whatever, and then they send in the test, and it goes, "Oh yeah, it doesn't actually have any of that in there." Yeah. Well, well. So, so actually, that that sort of happened a little bit with Kyron. So in Kyron's case, so. Uh, and he and I maybe disagree about this a little bit, but um, he has a snake that was sold to him as het albino. And he has another snake that is was sold to him just as normal. And the one that's described as het albino, in my test, does not look like it's het for albino. But it just so happens that one of his other animals, this normal animal that was not sold to him as het anything, looks like it's probably het for albino. So he kind of lost one, gained one. It's kind of like when you got yeah, a snake the, in the, the mail. The normal that we- was a, a pet store special, not Petco. <laughs> we have a local pet store here in, um, actually it's in Saline where I got him. And so it just looks like a regular normal, um, but apparently he's had for albino. But the clown that I got that um, is supposedly, and I just wanted a clown. I didn't care whether it was al- head albino or whatever, um, was supposedly had for albinism. But apparently he doesn't have this allele. So, so have y'all figured out any uh, percentage of error in these tests, or is it pretty accurate every time, or is there a? So that's a good question. So um, I guess my feeling is when I do the test, it's essentially always accurate. I do sometimes have a concern about my students doing it in the classroom because they don't always follow the instructions correctly. No, that can't be I true. Mean, students are amazing. What? And I always listen. that I, um, I have given the same students, or excuse me, different students the same animal, and they've always come back with the same answer. So I think that it is um, mostly accurate. Now that's a good idea. Having them having them all work on the same one and make sure they're checking no, each other's work. Basically. Make that their final. Give them all the exact sample of DNA, and then whoever gets it wrong fails the next year. <laughs> Gosh, I, James. I'm doing something that I don't know if this is really like that. I should say this as an instructor. So I can see the students' grades in their previous classes before I start the semester. Um, and I noticed that students who have higher grades in their previous classes are ones that tend to, you know, pay attention better and follow instructions better. So I've considered, for example, giving one shed to two different people and specifically always choosing a student who had higher grades and a student had lower grades so that I, you know, make sure everybody's getting the experience, but at least getting a stronger student on that. So in elementary that. school, we call that differentiation and it's mm-hmm. totally fine. We do it all the time. <laughs> That's all you're doing. You are ability grouping and differentiating your projects. You just give a 
fun <laughs> words that make it sound like you're doing something fancy when in reality you're just I do that all the time in, in fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, we hammer that home in education programs too. Mm-hmm. How are you differentiating? Yep. <laughs> Uh, let's see. One of our per- let's see. They ask. I'm gonna read this out loud. I'm see if I make sense of it as I read it. So in blood pythons, I hear matrix, which is heterozygous, and matrix, which is heterozygous. The homozygous form is ivory. Now I hear hitting the homozygous form is exceedingly hard to get when it should be a one in four chance of hitting it. Now is there something else going on in the allele that makes that harder for, to make them, or is it just that bad of luck? So I'm not familiar with this exact situation, yeah. but it could be that the homozygous animals have a higher rate of lethality during embryo development, um, and so they just don't always hatch. That That's possible. So if he's basically getting a lot of dead or you know undeveloped eggs, um, that would, once you add those together, would make it one in four. That's probably what's happening. Um, I think without in- more information, it'd be hard to say for sure what's going on yeah. there. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I know... Our buddy April will probably be able to answer that much better than I could because she breeds bloods. Um, I, I mean, I know there are some things in certain snakes that, uh, like uh, the motley gene and boas, if you get a super motley or a homozygous motley, they tend to die fairly early, somewhere around two or three years old. Uh, I know that the homozygous version of jaguar carpet pythons are solid white, but they are dead. They don't actually survive being born. Um, I know there's several genes where that happens. Uh, and if it happens early enough, obviously you would never really catch it because you would never see the dead yes. animal to prove yes. it. Yes, and typically morphs that are completely white like that usually have, at the molecular level, a pretty severe defect in terms of there's a lot of cells that are making the wrong decisions about either where they need to be or what, what type of cell they need to be. And so um, the fact that it's called ivory, so I'm presuming it's an all-white snake, Um so. That uh, that that also makes me think that, that it, this is, scenario is more likely. Awesome. All right. So, James, when you started this podcast, you agreed that it would not just be an interview. Yeah, but podcast. this was this is different. This is different. I wanted to know this is an interview. Like we didn't, <laughs> I didn't plan the other stuff we normally do because I wanted. I, there was a lot of interesting stuff here that I know people wanted to hear about, and that this whole thing. If done and people really buy into it, could definitely change the hobby. I think for better. Because um, there are a lot of people out there that sell possible, or well, there's a lot of people out there that sell hats that are not hats. And if they can send them some sort of certificate back, going, "Look, this is what it is," and they can sell that with a snake, that makes your $200 snake now maybe a $2,000 snake. Because I can prove, look, this is it. You are getting this. But you also have it on the other side of the spectrum, where your $2,000 snake may only be a $200 snake, which is why Hannah's having issues yeah. getting some. Some sheds from some of the some of the breeders. Yeah, yeah. It, it is what it is. But I mean, I, I think the people, the reputable people, will understand will want to know what they have. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on genetics lately. Uh, the ability to test your animals for um, oh, what is the virus? I can't think of that's killing snakes. Nido. Nido. Yeah, the way they have those tests for Nido, I think those are amazing. You can test an entire collection for Nido. I think a lot of, and especially like what they're doing. The this test is fairly inexpensive which for a genetics test is amazing because i think 15 20 years ago anything genetics would have been twenty thousand dollars to try and do and y'all can do it for fairly cheap i I will say so the reason that genetics tests like let's say you were um planning to have a baby and you wanted to be tested to know whether you're a carrier of certain genetic diseases and that would probably cost you several hundred dollars depending on exactly what you wanted most of that money actually goes to pay the humans who are doing something with your sample in the lab manipulating it 
In our case, the reason it's less expensive is because we have students doing it who are learning the genetic techniques. And so they're not, they're not being paid. They're, it's part of their education. So they're being paid an experience. Yeah, yes. I mean, technically, they are paying to have the experience. That's right. <laughs> but, but it's not like, yeah, yeah, you understand. Okay, so my question is, and this has nothing to do with your research at all and all to do with you, what podcasts, if any, do you listen to for fun or in your free time? Are they science-related? Are they reptile-related? Are they... Well, I'm going to go with Hannah. They're probably not reptile-related. Are they education-related? What are what podcasts do you listen to? Um, uh, so I can start. So my favorite, some of my favorite podcasts, they're not really education um, or certainly not reptile-related. One of my favorites is um, 99% Invisible, which is a design podcast. And design is broadly interpreted. So it's about um, cities and... Uh, to call it about cities. It, it's just about like human made design things and how they can be better. That's, That's cool. one of my favorites. Um, I also like uh, the podcast criminal, which is in theory about crimes, but they're more, it's not really a true crime podcast. It's about all sorts of interesting things involving crimes. That's cool. Ro- Sean Robert Gray. Loves true crime broad- podcast. I'll listen to a few. Yeah, I'm, I know. She always talk about you listen to true crime. Pro- um, I can't get into true crime podcast. Yeah, I mean, I listen to what James considers really boring podcasts. But yeah, you listen to podcasts about quilting. I think it's cool. Oh. And How I listen. Would you? I feel like if it was a quilting podcast, you would want to see what they were talking about at the same time. So a lot of the quilting podcasts that I listen to actually have to do with the history of quilting. Oh. So like, there's a couple that have dealt with. Um, like quilts from the Underground Railroad and okay. all the research done with those. And when I remember when um, those were a really big deal. Yeah, so it's stuff like that on those podcasts. Or like um, there's different organizations that make quilts, like the Quilts of Valor make quilts for veterans. So it'll be like, this is what's going on in the world today type thing, and this is what we've done, and he makes fun of me for it. But it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Sean. So, Kyron, what kind of podcast do you listen to? So, my favorite is this uh, podcast called Throughline, um, and it's just because I'm a, uh, a history nerd as well, and so podcast does a really good job of kind of delving into the history behind, like, a ton of things. Right now, they're looking at, um, they're doing a special, or this series looking at capitalism, um, but the other one is Hitting Brain. Um, yeah. I like that one. So, I mean, I guess you could say they're they're educational, but they're kind of fun. They're not related to what I do specifically in my work. So, that's cool. Um, my daughter and I. That one through line. Oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> Robert's adding them to his list as we're talking. So my daughter and I actually recently listened to a podcast called Frog of the Week. And they are, it's like two to three minute little clips. They come out once a week. We actually listen to like everything that's been out so far in the span of like 45 you, you minutes. Binge listen to Frog we of binge listened Frog of the Week in, a, in about 45 minutes in the car. But what was cool about it is, it, okay, let me rephrase that. What I thought was interesting is like episode one or two, my daughter was like, I just don't know. There's something about her voice. Like, cause she's, she's very relaxed and calm and she, she doesn't really get super excited. It's very informative. It's almost like when you, 
this is going to show my age. When you go to a museum and you get headphones and a little cassette deck and you walk around and you do your own personal tour, do they still do this? I don't know. Yeah, but now it's probably on your phone. It's probably a podcast on your phone now. Um, But anyways, (laughs) but that's, that's what her voice sounded like to me. But it was such a neat, I like frogs. So it was a really neat podcast for me because every, it's frogs of the week. And every week they, there. I mean, there were frogs that they were talking about that I had no clue which even were, existed. Which would be most frogs. Um, but it was, it was really cool. It includes sounds of what those frogs sound like in the wild and little facts about them. And so that one was fun. So there's another faculty member in our department who teaches the herpetology class. Cool. And I'm going to tell her about this project podcast. I bet she, she might be interested in doing some type of assignment, you know, where students maybe have to listen to some episode and answer some questions or like investigate. Um, yeah. You know, so, they talk about. so you have another professor that teaches a herpetology class. Have, have they mm-hmm. tried to reach out and tie into anything you're doing or connect? I mean, I imagine what you're doing has to really interest them. I mean, I guess if they're field herping, it probably not as much. They but. have answered my um, really naive questions about reptiles. I feel your um, pain. Uh, but, um, but they, oh, and they did put me in touch with um, someone at a local zoo who um, I asked them questions about DNA extraction to. Um, but I would say the person, so the person who teaches that class is, um, I would describe her as really interested in reptiles in the wild yeah. and less interested in captive reptiles. And that, I think that's that's always been uh, one issue with the hobby, um, the the college side of it the intellectual side of it and the hobby side of not always seen eye to eye so it's very right. interesting seeing you doing a study at a college level which is very much based in the hobby you know you're looking yeah. at these morphs that shows my naivete when it comes to reptiles in general but, you know, uh, but the, see i disagree with that oh what's that i disagree i don't I, I mean, it may have started out as, as you being naive and not knowing about the two crossing, but in reality, it's, it's almost like you're bringing the two together. Yeah, um, I think what I bring is the eye of the genesis to make hypotheses about what genes might be causing some of these morphs. And right now, I'm um, planning to write a small paper that where the, the sort of take-home message of the paper would be, hey, geneticists. Look at all these ball pythons out there. They're this really interesting resource for understanding the genetics of color and reptiles. Here's what they look like. Here's some ideas about what the genes are. No one is studying them. They're this resource that you didn't know about. And pay no attention to the silly names that they gave them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So Sean says, so hobbyists can't be intellectual. Now, Sean, you run a reptile expo. You know <laughs> that not all hobbyists are intellectuals. Okay? I'm just saying. We're, we're going to tell the truth. I went to a reptile show here in Michigan for the first time, and I was surprised. Oh, goodness. Well, I was surprised you could also get, like, your body jewelry and your, um, like, piercing supplies also at the reptile show. We're a weird weird group of people. Yeah, we are. That's putting it lightly. It's it's loosely defined as reptile expo. (laughs) Yeah. It, uh, It can be very interesting being at a reptile expo. Uh, Warren says he integrates undergrads through postdocs into all my reptile work. Our new Python phylogenetics phylogenetics work uh, was undergrad driven. Come on, James. I know it. Come on. Uh, I should look into that phylogenetics. So basically he's saying we're trying to figure out which pythons are related to which other pythons. 
Yeah, he said also uh, the parthenogenesis work often includes undergrads. Uh, for example, the balls and retic pythons, parthenogenesis paper. Yeah, he's done a lot with the, par- the partho stuff I find very interesting. And the, the most amazing part that I found, and, and I thought it was funny because Warren – uh, I, I don't know how much time y'all spend on Facebook in any of the reptile groups, but it gets very interesting on Facebook when you talk to Facebook experts about reptiles. Uh, so, so Warren was talking about parthenogenesis, and someone told him he didn't know what he was talking about, which I thought was hilarious because he wrote the paper. Uh, but that parthenogenesis actually happens way more often in ball pythons than anyone actually thought of. So it's very interesting for something like what you're doing. Uh, someone could have a baby in a clutch, yes. and one of them could be a partho baby. And not actually be het for what it should yeah. be het for. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Actually, there was a recently someone emailed me and said, you know, I'm sending you the shed. And by the way, I think that this animal might be have have come from parthenogenesis. Can you test? And I said, um, I might be able to. Sort of depends on the genetics, but I can um, keep that on my list of student projects. And she said, okay, great. So um, I could probably. Um, yeah, I should look into how how common it is. I hadn't realized. Yeah, how Dr. Booth, it was. he's. He had a lot of them. He it would get any found. That's when he found out that it was it was very often that you would find ball pythons that were through partho. So that's one where area where someone could be selling a pos het yeah. albino or or yes. het albino should be het. One of the parents were albino, but it comes out yeah. it actually was a normal. It never got an albino gene. So and so Dr. Graves was saying that he's got you know he's got his male, he's got his female, he's got some eggs, and then he's going to have some of Hannah's students go through the sheds. I mean, there's a possibility that he could have something like oh, yeah. that pop out of one of his clutches. And yeah, by- actually, and one of the things that I, I forgot to mention this, but um, last year and a year before, one of my uh, females, she um, she had both years she had a um, a clutch of a surviving clutch of five. So one year was five, the other year was six, and in the first clutch, two of the babies that came out were spider. Neither of the parents have spider. The next year, a third one came out spider. And so one of the things that um, I'm planning on um, doing um, is having Hannah look at those um, look at those sheds and determine if the, the father who I think is the father is actually the father, because just on the surface, it's like this shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And so the genetics test are, are, um, testing works out in that way as well to kind of confirm, um, not only part though, but you know, uh, paternity. I think that's really, that that to me, I think is really cool. I just want to say Warren also said that all of his papers on what he wrote was on his website, booth-lab.org. Same by. I I do the paper of his that I'm most familiar with is the one about the sex chromosome in Boas and Python. Yeah. And there's a lot of work that goes into earning that doctor title. So I don't ever know when I should use it and when I shouldn't use it. So I will just call you Warren. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Booth. He said a recent paper showed storage for six years. That would make breeding miserable. But here's the I, thing, I though. I saw someone who had a clutch. Uh, they just had a female lay a clutch that they haven't paired in three years. And when they had the babies, they were definitely from that male from three years before. But has your female that threw the spiders ever been with another male? Or with the spider? Well, spider. The first year, um, she had been with two other males, but neither one of those males have a spider either. So I'm in the second year, she was just with that one male. 
And spider, if I remember, spider's a incomplete dominant trait, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, they would they would have to either be or not be. So that's that's the weird thing there. Although I mean, I mean, well, it can't be. I would say you could guess for a, a random mutation, but a random mutation doesn't happen three times in in one snake's babies. So that just would be weird. That's cool, though. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that's one of those situations where uh, it, an answer for something may raise more questions. Yeah. All right, so we talked about podcast stuff. Do either of you, and you don't have to tell us when you watch YouTube, but do either of we you... We all know when people watch YouTube. It's no, when they poop. No, <laughs> I watch YouTube just to watch YouTube. Pooping Every is the time week. to watch YouTube. Every week. Oh, my gosh. Just because you want to watch it. Do you watch anything on YouTube? Like, I don't watch a whole lot of YouTube. I have more time to listen to things like podcasts than I do on YouTube to watch things. They're but busy do, working. They're actually like, I know, doing stuff. I know. Do y'all watch any anybody particular on YouTube? I'm mostly like you. I, I mostly just um, listen to podcasts. Occasionally, I'll look for something on YouTube if I'm looking for instructions for how to do something. Like, you know, I need to disassemble my vacuum cleaner, and now I need to find a video of somebody showing me how to do it. Yes. Most, things like that. I've got to do I'm that changing the shocks machine. on our yeah. washing machine tomorrow. Oh, yep. I just—I uh, actually just watched some videos about washing machine repair. Yep. Doing a, a similar repair myself. Yep, the parts are cheaper on Amazon, is what I have found. Just a heads up. Yeah. <laughs> YouTube has been really good with that DIY. Um, like we just recently had to—we um, had our wax ring go out in one of our toilets. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, I guess I'm pulling up YouTube to check out a video on how to right? replace this yep. thing and what happened. Because at first I didn't know what happened. Um, we just had this water, water coming out, right? I started an entire construction company years ago, learning how to lay tile on YouTube, and it just yeah. grew and grew from there. That's awesome. Did, did you learn how to lay tile while pooping on the toilet? No, no James. No. Not everyone, everyone watches YouTube on the toilet. Nope. When else you gonna watch it? When you need to learn how to do things, like take apart your washing machine or flip the door on your dryer so it opens from the left instead of the right, which I also did and felt super proud of myself for doing because you weren't home. So I think, I think Sean, <laughs> so Sean asked, is there any published, uh, anything published yet on the lemon fra- uh, frost results? I don't think that was y'all's, right? That was somebody else? That's right. That was somebody else. And that actually was published just a couple of days ago. Um, there's actually some, if you, I, I think if you Google lemon frost, um, leopard gecko, it'll probably come up. It's in the journal. It's called Floss Biology, P-O-L, P-L-O-S Biology. And it's been it's received some news coverage, I think, in Scientific American and maybe a few other places. Cool. So Warren said, uh, spider blackheads look normal, so a male could look normal but make spiders. Yeah, but these, the, the, the three males in question... Um, you would definitively know one of them, maybe. Um, so one is a um, one is the clown. One is one was a, a inchy a, a pastel inchy head clown, and then one was a banana lemon blast. So it's possible the lemon blast could have had spider, and you couldn't really see it. But yeah, yeah. So Sean said the lemon frost gene causes fatal tumors. Okay, so I actually Googled it when she said that. And I have, because I get the Reptile Magazine, well, you get the subscription, which I need to change the address for, by the way. Don't let me forget. Um, But I get the email updates, and that was one of the things that was posted in the email update. Um, It was talking about the tumors and the the cancers and things like that. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So you you guys probably know that in reptiles, there's three different types of color cells, whereas mammals, we just have one type of color cell. 
And in mammals, our color cells can cause tumors, which are known as melanomas. And in these leopards, they have a tumor that's formed by a different type of the color cells. So it's kind of like a melanoma, but it's formed not by the um, cell that's making melanin, but by the cell that's making a different color structure. So it's actually really interesting. So I think I actually just found the the paper you were talking about on bio R X I V. It's pronounced bioarchive. So that's okay. the print, and it's since been published in an actual journal. Okay. And there might be a link from bioarchive. Um, we, can I, sh- we can share that over on the yeah. That's group. I, yeah. I was going to share it on the group. Absolutely. Like enter stuff into the chat. I'm not. I'm not totally sure if I. Yeah, you should be. I can't because okay. my computer is so, not actually. So Sean was asking because uh, we talked earlier about some of these uh, fatal genes. He was wondering if tests like this could be used to help identify fatal genes. I guess you would need to know ahead of time and, and know what marker to look for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so in a sense, yes, if they were always, well, okay. So if something always caused the animal to be fatal and it was dominant fatal, of course you couldn't get animals to look at, but if it was something that was homozygous fatal, yes, you could be identifying that. Gotcha. I didn't um, understand that. So, okay, sorry, so there's, no, 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 no. But, but what I'm thinking of is there, I've talked to someone about fat tail geckos, I think it was, and you can't breed this type of fat tail gecko to this type of fat tail gecko because the babies will never make it. So I would assume maybe with a snake it's similar, like you can't breed this species, this morph to this morph or none of your babies make it. There's some where the fatal is, like it's in in formation, so yeah, so you would never form. But like we're talking about something like uh, the super uh, motley boas or the co-dominant homozygous motley boas, Mm -hmm. they can reach breeding age technically, um, so you could still get one later in life that that still carries a fatal gene that's going to cause them to die early. But you would have to know... Which genes were the fatal ones in order to say, yes, your snake has this or no, your snake doesn't, right? Yes. In order to, in order to like recognize that these fatal genes even existed, you would need to know, you would need to have some indication that animals were dying. (laughs) Right. Like you would have to have enough people say this. Yes. 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 Pink gene. I'm trying to think of something that's not a ball python morph. Um, you know, good luck. Every word is used as ball python morph at this point. You know, like you would say like this pink morph dies, whatever. In the case of these lemon frost animals, they, they don't die during the embryo. They grow up and then they get a tumor as they're older. And so you can, that's how you can get information from them because they, they can die early, but they're not dead from the get go. I put the, I put the link in the private chat. I I I don't see a way for me to put it. In I'll post it. I'll post okay. it on our on our Facebook page. Okay. But Sean said the same with the lemon frost gene that uh, that's why he doesn't allow people to sell them at the shows because you can sell one and then it will die later. Uh, right. Which unfortunately there are some people in this hobby. I mean, with any hobby, there are shady people. People knowing that this animal will die early. Let me go ahead and get my money now. Okay, so that was my next question. Was so it 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 basically like there are some genes out there that will significantly shorten the lifespan. Yes. Okay, so like chameleons that only live for five years, you're buying an animal knowing it's only going to live for five years, whereas leopard geckos may live for twenty years, but you could be buying a genetic leopard gecko that's only going to live for five. Yeah. So like Robert has a motley boa. That motley boa is healthy. But if I were to breed that motley boa to another motley and get a solid black boa, it'll probably die around age two or three. Oh. 
So yes, okay. I can fill it off. So with now I understand the question and the not because re- that's why I'm like, if it's yeah. fatal, it's not going to live. But I didn't understand that they would just live for a shorter lifespan. So I get that now. Yeah, there are some genetic traits that don't become fatal until later in life. So be okay. prior to breeding age or after breeding age, but yeah. Okay, that now his question makes a lot more sense. Ta-da! <laughs> we got yeah, there. That's actually um, a big controversy in human genetic testing. There are certain genes you can learn that you have that might indicate you're going to have a shorter life or have certain diseases when you're older. And so there's big ethical discussions about should people... Should we inform them that they have that if they didn't specifically ask about it? Because yeah. that could, they may want to know that information or they may not. You could imagine that some people would and some people wouldn't. Yeah, some people will take it as, all right, now I'm going to go do everything I couldn't do if I don't live this long. And some people take it as being depressed because now they know they're going to die early. And Yeah, or some people might just use it to, you know, plan to make sure all, all their finances and everything yeah. are in order. So that those um, people are responsible. Forget those people. <laughs> if you're dying early, go jump out of a plane and go do whatever. Like, right. I'm not allowed to jump out of planes. Well, if you're going to die, you could jump out of a plane. That's not cool. You can't do it beforehand because if you're not supposed to die early and then you die because the parachute doesn't open, then I'm left alone. And that's not. That's I'm not, not allowed to skydive. Until I die. Until James dies. Yeah. Yeah. Because a parachute may not open. <sighs> okay. Moving on. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so, like Robert said, we have we have reached. Two yeah, we have. Now. We've covered a lot of stuff. This has been Very awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm extremely interested to see where this moves on from this point on, uh, because, like I said, as a hobby side, and I know Hannah does, definitely does not come at it from a hobby side, but from the hobby side, I see where this is, could be a huge thing, just to clear up a lot of confusion and purposeful confusion that has happened in the past in this hobby. Uh, and I love the idea that we could go, all right, this is definitely what it is. I don't care what you say. Genetics says this is what this thing is. You can call it whatever imaginary name you want to, but it's the same thing as what that guy's selling on his table. They're the exact same snake. And you don't have some – because there was somebody uh, – we saw somebody in a group the other day post something that said they had a gene, a brand-new gene, that they were the only one that had it, and they were going to make tons of money. And it was it was the same thing something as that something guy, else. That guy has done that about five times. <laughs> and uh, he bought some normals and pastels, in this, and he's got a couple of dinkers that are imports, and he thinks everything's a new gene. And, and then when people tell him it's not, he – starts cursing them and then starts calling them thousands of times and yeah oh so stars. yeah that was well stupid. i cannot thank either one of you yeah. enough for coming on this has been super awesome i'm yeah. i might actually retain some of this information which would like, be great when we were having, will be so proud when we were having dinner before this katie was like i don't really know what i'm going to contribute tonight yeah no and she's yeah you can tell she, my head hurt yeah. thinking about well, see, the conversations that's that why, were going to be happening that's tonight. why it's useful to have you because like I could talk on a more genetic level, but I would talk over stuff that you wouldn't understand, and I would assume yeah. that everybody understands it because I took genetics classes in college. So I would assume not everybody, everybody had to. No. <laughs> no. And I still hate fruit flies. But- well, thank you so much for having us. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, this has been a blast, guys. I'm so thank glad. Yeah, so really fun. I like getting all your questions and answering all these questions, and I'm, I I need to I think learn to give answers better that. Um, that are more appropriate for someone who doesn't have as much knowledge about genetics. So that's been really good. Well, let's be real though. Your students probably have way more knowledge about this than I do. So you're probably used Um, to speaking on their level. I've met undergrad. Not so much mine. (laughs) I 
I have a variety of students, and some of them do, and some of them don't. I, I would I, second that. <laughs> look, I've met undergrad biology majors who were just there for nursing school, and so when you get into something like this, they're like, I don't know what we're doing. Yeah, I, I have taught fifth grade for several years, and this upcoming year, I will be dropping down to third grade, so... That's gonna, too young. It's going to be fun. You can't yell at third graders. I can yell at high school I'm kids. I'm excited. Um, yeah, Victor, I think that this being able to genetically talk about the markers and the morphs, I think it will bring up some controversy. But, it, but the problem is it'll bring up controversy, but it really won't. Like it either. It, the great thing about science, and I'm, it's always my argument when people want to say something that doesn't exist. In science, it either is or it, or isn't. it isn't. Those are the options. Like You can disagree with it all you want, and you'll be wrong. But Like our favorite... Texas Black Panther. Oh, yeah, the Black Panthers don't exist. (laughs) The group where everybody has to say Black Panthers are real, and it's not even a thing. But yes, so like they have the picture of these markers. They can go, look, it is this, or it's not this. Now you can get upset and argue it, which will just be wrong. Right. So, yes, there will be controversy, but the controversy will be between people who literally barely passed high school biology, and now they're trying to tell doctors why they're wrong, which I always find hilarious on Facebook. And I agree with Sean Gray. Controversy 100%. is needed. And yes. it makes for great conversations like this was. Um, so, Hannah, if people want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to do that? They can email me. Can I put my email in the chat? Or yeah. We can, we'll take it and we'll put it in uh, yep. when I post this. So mm-hmm. we'll get it from you and we'll do that. And Because yeah. I've already posted the Leopard Gecko and tagged Sean Gray so <laughs> he can see an, the article. An address for where they can send <laughs> sheds to or wherever a website you want to send them yeah. to to read all that. Okay. We'll put- I will send you an email immediately after this with a link to our website and a link to the publications. And I'm probably also going to CC Warren Booth on that because he said he wanted that information as well. Absolutely. That'd be great. Sounds great. And so we'll get that out to our listeners in case they want to reach out to you. And then, Kyron, if people want to get a hold of you. Yeah, so I've got a, um, a couple of Facebook pages um, that I should probably check more frequently. <laughs> uh, you know, we were talking about YouTube. Started them, I thought it was a good idea, and then realized that, wow, um, you know, Life. a lot of things are happening at work right now. <laughs> kind of hard to keep up with Facebook. Um, but I can put that in the, the same with Hannah. I can put that in some of that stuff in a, the private chat. Um, as far as like Morph Market, I'm on Morph Market as Wesley Ball Pythons. Um, Wesley's my middle name because people always mess up Chiron, <laughs> which is why, like I said, you know, is it Chiron? That, that, <laughs> that you all got it. And right we're the in the South, time. so yeah, Chiron would have definitely been how it went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my cousin used to tease me about that. Oh my goodness! That's why, like, I'm a high school biology teacher. I, I've seen way worse names that I had to try to get on the first day. <laughs> There's there's only two vowels in that name. We're doing pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I will call students by their I'll I'll say Mister So and So, and I'll call them by their last name because I know I can pronounce their last name. And then I'm like, so how do you say your first name? Teach me. So uh-huh. you know, but yeah. All right, so Robert, if people want to get a hold of you, www.lsreptilerex.com. Why every time, James? Every time. I don't want my brand to be tainted with that dumb shit. I uh, know, James. Yeah, that's horrible. We don't want your dumb shit. <laughs> it comes along with the podcast. Yeah. 
We have actually, our listeners are maybe like messaging us to make sure that we are like well and healthy because we were very professional tonight, guys. Yes. <laughs> you done messed up, A.A. Ron. Oh my goodness. Anyone as a teacher definitely has to go watch that from Key and Peele, the, uh, the substitute teacher clip from Key and Peele. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best ever. Oh my but goodness. If you want to get All a hold right. of us, or yes. for me, it's simply underscore serpents on Instagram or simply serpents at talking to the mic james i am simply serpents at hot uh no I was gonna, what, 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 simply serpents on facebook god it's been forever <laughs> simply serpents on facebook i will have rainbow boas hopefully for sale and they two, are bitey too much they are bitey I gotta, they bite like hell uh, if you want to get a hold of us it is the reptile gumbo podcast on instagram facebook and at gmail.com that's where i was getting confused um so you two stick around we're gonna make this not a live broadcast anymore but don't go anywhere yet but thank y'all i want to thank all of our listeners for the questions i want to thank the several phds that we had tonight all over the place i feel smarter by being uh acquaintances in the same they might not call you a friend (laughs) one of them's a friend he sent me a snake he's my friend I thanked him for pretzels that he made. You did not. Travis Wyman sent me a snake. <laughs> he sent me a snake for you. That's true, but it's well, actually, actually, you didn't have to drive to the hub and pick it up. I've met the guy, so there stuff. you go. <laughs> Anyways, thank y'all for coming on. Uh, and that is it. Good night. Bye bye.